But he digs down deep, Mike, and Gray is bent, and my God, here comes David Arcat. What's left of him? He is literally dragging himself out. I tell you, DDP, right now, I know what he's thinking about Jared and about Bishop, but he's got his wife and his mind full time. That time, Kimberly gets kissed by DDP. Who can throw the pinball head? Kimberly went down in a heat. There's no referee, guys. There's a there's a referee. He's over towards our guest. One, two, three. What? 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 The, did, what? What is? Did David Arquette just? What's going on here? David Arquette won the world title. David Arquette won the world title. He can't believe it. David Arquette won the world title. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter at JamesAlexMattis and at Avnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, cohort and comrade, Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? I am very excited, because we are uh, recording a very special episode. We're episode recording 20. Episode 20. We're in the future right now. We're not going to lie to you. This is being recorded in between episodes... 16 and 17. <laughs> it's in between Slumdog and... And uh, Take Me Home Tonight. Yes, but, you know, uh, it's hard enough to get two of us together in the same room. Getting three of us together is, is just almost impossible. So we had to like uh, jump at the chance of doing this. Because uh, it's our second uh, Gray Area episode and our first three-person episode. And we have uh, our friend Eddie Strait here uh, as our special guest. How you doing, Eddie? Pretty good. You know, pretty pretty excited. Just like the movie we're about to talk about, we're gonna reboot the gray. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, take the original, do what you know, take what made it good and, and add to it and make it better. That's right. Uh, after twenty episodes, after nineteen episodes, it's it's bound to you know, we have to change the rules, shake it up. Yeah, we gotta introduce some new things. And Julio, for those who may not remember, just go ahead and explain the concept of the Gray Area episode. The Gray Area episode is that uh, when we talk about a movie that has split run tomatoes in half. Uh, so it's a movie that's, it might be fresh, but it's a really low fresh, or it might be rotten, but it's a really high rotten. So unlike all of our other episodes where we are defending a rotten movie or a uh, uh, you know, destroying a fresh movie. In this one, we we just kind of discuss. We we each take a side, and of course, the three of us right now. Uh, and so, one of us is going to take the pro stance. One is going to be the con stance, and the third one is just gonna because of the movie that we're doing. Uh, it 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 lends itself to it. The other one is just going to be kind of a devil's advocate, going back and forth. Uh, which movie are we doing, Alex? 
Today we are here to talk about the seminal horror classic Scream 4, the one that not only rewrote but rebooted the horror genre in general, um, some may say. Yeah, well... I am not one of them. I mean, the characters certainly would say they've done it. (laughs) Over and over and over again. And so with Kevin Williamson, uh, I am going to be the the undecided party because I... Unlike these two gentlemen here, I'm not a huge fan of the Scream franchise. I'm not, I mean, I don't have anything against it, but it never really captured me that much. I watched the first one, I liked it, and uh, I never really finished the second one, having seen the third one, and this is the fourth time I've seen the fourth installment. So, to me, it was a completely different experience than for these two. It's a good thing you're not a fan of the franchise, because it was bludgeoned to death right in front of your eyes earlier today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's putting it kindly. (laughs) Or is it? (laughs) <laughs> all right so uh let's start off with uh, some quotes that show how confused and and uh, conflicted run tomatoes is uh james Rardinelli from real views said scream's brand of horror which lampooned this lasher genre while simultaneously embracing it was fun and breezy in 1996 in 2011 it's about as fresh as the whiff of something stale and rank from a crypt preach dana stevens from slate said craven guides us expert expertly down a series of blind bloody alleys a journey that's more pleasurable than frustrating on account of his steady hand the last act is as good as could be expected skillfully conceived and entertaining in its preposterousness amy curtis from we got discovered who just says weak plot half-assed performances and lacking any originality make this a lame and uninspired film and she's joined by roger moore from the tribune news service who says Fails the chills, stumbles as satire, tired, played out. He sounds tired. I came to play today, so I did find my own quote to use. Ooh, go, this go one for it. comes from Nathan Raven, uh, formerly of The Dissolve. Uh, here he's credited as uh, reviewing for the AV Club, and he says, 15 years in, the series now looks more than ever like a Mobius strip that reflects on itself in a perpetual loop, but meta-arbitrary is still arbitrary. Aw, Eddie did his homework. He came to play it. He's been listening to the show. All right. What can I say? You know, long time, first time. (laughs) I'm just happy to be here. All right. So I got uh, another bad one. Uh, Fred Topple from Screen Junkies (laughs) said, I'm too old for this movie. Scream 4 is for the internet generation, and I've kept up as best as I could. But I am simply not the person a movie about a webcam and found footage is for. That's for them. He just gave up on life. Then uh, Kevin McCarthy from BDK Reviews says, Scream 4 has the perfect opening and then slowly declines to a slightly above average slasher flick. It could have used more scares and less self-aware satire shtick. And that's a positive review, which is uh, weird because the next positive review, the one that we're closing with, is also uh, very mixed. It says... It's from Glenn Kenny at MSN Movies and says, It's not a disgrace. Indeed, it's not bad, if you like that sort of thing. While not particularly good, and yet it's one of the better horror films I've seen in a long time. So I think that all these quotes kind of show you how even the people that liked it didn't really like it, and the people that hate it are just kind of hating on the whole concept. Uh, it's because there's not much to like. I, I hate taking a con stance again because I did so with Natural Born Killers, but you guys just got to give me better movies. We'll see. No, see, I, <laughs> I, what I I think the these reviewers, you know, highly indicative of a you know split audience. Some you know a large group that just kind of doesn't get it and wasn't prepared for what you know the, the full meal that Scream Four is bringing to the table. I mean, that is a full meal. It's like uh, appetizer, 
uh, first course. <laughs> start off with lemon squares. They're lemon bars. <laughs> yeah, bars you have a main course, and then you know you have some noodles, and then uh, you even have dessert afterwards and coffee. It's like a whole thing of meta. So let's just get down to it here. With the they tease you with the appetizers first though, because this fucking opening just keeps going and. It, you know, Eddie, you got the the positive approach to the movie. We basically start here with opening inside of an opening inside of an opening. Do you think this is to play with the audience's emotions or like a throwback to the franchise? I mean, it, it dives into what this movie is all about, which is the meta and exploring, you know, the value of, you know, self-commentary, being hyper aware of everything that you're doing, you know, not not really living your life, but, you know, kind of living your life voyeuristically through the lens of somebody else that's going to be watching your life, which gets to another theme that we're going to get to, which is kind of the, uh, you know, the uh, entitlement that this new generation has. So we start off with two brunette girls. I apologize. I didn't catch their names. I think uh, Eddie said one of them was supposed to be from Pretty Little Liars. They obviously have some relevancy. Well, they're to... brunette one and brunette two. Yeah. But yeah. And I think they're supposed to have some relevancy to the audience watching it. I'm just too old. For this yeah. Movie. Well, the, you know, the modern audience <laughs> is going to recognize the girl from Pretty Little Liars. And I just want it noted for the record that I don't watch Pretty Little Liars. I've just uh, I have a wife that loves it. That's, that's fine. No judgment here. That's all right. No and judgment. we have we have a friend that loves the books, and that's really irrelevant. You can still apologize. It's all right. Know, it's all right. It's, we're going to be referencing Brandon Curtis later, maybe. So we had to get it in now. So these two brunettes eat it in what we think is the beginning, but it's really just the opening of Stab Six, and we find out that we get a nice cameo from a very hot blonde Anna Paquin, one of the highlights of the movie, honestly, and Kristen Bell watching the movie. But that's not the opening. Uh, that's the opening of Stab 7. That's the opening of a better movie, if you ask me. Because, honestly, to see oh, yeah. True Bloods, Anna Packman, and, and Veronica Marsh herself in a movie, that's that's kind of cruel for, for them to toy with us. It like looks that. like they're having like a sleepover, and that's the movie I want to stay with. Yes. I don't, <laughs> don't want to go off track here. With or at the very least, show us what happened before they watch the movie. I mean, there's probably like a solid 90 minutes that could have oh yeah. yeah i mean they're they're obviously stripped down to, to pjs and bad attire i mean there's a, had, there's a story of how they got they've there had, they've had a whole movie yeah of, of, of adventures before they get to stab seven but if it yeah it, i mean i assume it involves stabs one through six but <laughs> but it turns out it's just yet again the opening of a movie after Kristen bell stabs anna paquin and we go to what is supposed to i guess be the real world where you know neo and dr uh, morpheus are where the blonde, did you say Friday Night Lights? Is yes, Amy T. Garden. Thank you. And then Mousy Girl from Dan in Real Life. Uh, they're watching the movie and then they get into an argument. And then, you know, if you've seen a Scream movie, you know what's going to happen next. The phone rings and there's a creepy guy on the other line. And, like, at this point, we're like... I mean, we've, we've literally just seen this formula play out two times in a row. And now we're on the third incarnation. And it's, it's really like, you know, if you jumped at the first time, okay, you know. You're new to the movie, but by this point, it's a, a fool me once, fool me twice. What does it say when you get fooled the third time? Three times a lady, and uh, you know this is, I guess, plays into the meta aspect of the film. But naturally, these two blondes eat it, and then we get the title opening, very reminiscent of every other screen. Every screen's open that way, right? With like, uh, oh yeah, there's always the the name person getting getting taken out before our very eyes. The title hits the screen, and you know the most heartbreaking of which is part three in which Cotton Weary, Liv Schreiber, a uh, personal favorite, dies. This entire favorite film. Beloved, exonerated, uh, falsely accused rapist murderer, <laughs> and then turned 
Turn very popular host. talk show host, Cotton Weary. This entire film, I was just waiting for Liv Schreiber to come save the day. But it is not to be as the title hits the screen. So you said the big name gets killed. In the, in the, who was the big name here? <laughs> because, Anna Paquin. Okay, yeah, but that well, happens I mean, to this generation, through. we've got Anna Paquin, Veronica Mars, Two Pretty Brunette. Little Liars Girl, Amy Teagarden. The, the daughter from Dan in real life. Okay, granted, I've only seen the first one. But the first one's the one that opens with Drew Barrymore getting yep. killed, right? Okay, so maybe if you add changer. the star power of Anna Paquin and Veronica Mars and the other four girls, maybe you get close to Drew Barrymore's star power. But if you ask me, they're they're not starting with a bang here other than, than the Russian doll. Uh, you're not going to find an argument here. And, you know, the kills are very mundane. And we, there's been a, a standard that's been set. And, you know, all this time off, I think, really hurt it. A, a positive, I will say, is they play the sounds over the opening credits, which I'm a big fan of the sounds. But we get a shot of a decade. Yeah, I do like the way you hear everything that happens. <laughs> yes, I, I was not a fan of silent movies. So the sounds it's, are awesome. The sound is a band. Cox. We open with a shot of a decorated Westboro. And it's supposed to be the anniversary of the killings. I believe so. I mean, there's also a major uh, book event going on in town, bringing Sydney back home. So that's extremely poor taste, though. I thought I, I thought it was a prank uh, that they, and that's what they were taking them down. That's, was yeah. it a prank or? or yeah. Or, okay, or, so it was a prank. Okay. Yeah, it was like, I believe like the high school kids, you know, decorating because they're also you know coming up on the occasion of the annual tradition of stabathon okay then that's cool because if it was just like the bookstore like decorating the town like that, no no horrible. no it's it's the punk teenagers that don't have any reverence or respect for history so like you know the boy who cried wolf or anyone else who just you know goes to the well once too often or any other cliches i could use here sydney shows back up to the scene of the crime you know what can go wrong she's there with her latest book written about the first three screen movies i can assume um her PR agent is Allison Brie, though, which is nice to see. She would have been writing very high off community fame at this point, not so much anymore. Yeah, this, you know, the casting of Allison Brie is really key because I, I believe wholeheartedly that Dan Harmon got all of his inspiration from the original Scream and all its meta referencing. And it, it kind of comes full circle here when you get references to, uh, you know, things that have we used to love in the past, which community played on nostalgia a lot. And so did scream referencing all the old horror movies all the time. Uh, you know, we get a lot of, a lot of favorites long that were long lost referenced in the beginning between, uh, you know, Veronica Mars, Friday night lights. And we've got a couple more later with Battlestar Galactica. And so there's like the show, the movie, uh, you know, it re was really eye opening to me in terms of how to view community. And it, it's also weird because the two kind of parallel each other where they started off really strong, arguably peaked with their second versions. And then by, you know, later the, you know, the main creative force had to leave and then eventually did come back and tried to salvage what, you know, what had been wrought. Sold. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that Dan Herman did like a, a ghost writing, uh, you know, draft of this movie right before Circus. It's, you know, it really, it seems like the kind of thing that's up his alley. Very well could have, because they, you know, there's a throwaway reference to Veronica Mars in Community at one point, and this isn't really a big meta reference thing. I think it's just kind of, you know, pandering to the crowd, but in, in an age where terrible TV shows get to live on way longer than they should have, and, and the greats burn, you know, burn bright, die young. It was really satisfying seeing Veronica Mars kill True Blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is that is a great point. I, I really throughout the entire movie, uh, I want to say I just 
because of the meta aspect and how like the the just the nature of the script and the twists and turns i swear i could hear uh kevin williamson just giggling in the background through the entire movie and there was a second like set of laughter and now i know that's dan Harmon's. he was probably there the entire time Meanwhile, I'm grunting and rolling my eyes almost to an audible degree over here. Just, you know, move along with it already. And then we get, I guess, the one reference in the film that's supposed to be for anyone over fucking 15, where we're introduced to world heavyweight, former world heavyweight champion David Arquette. His cell phone rings, and it's the Beverly Hills cop theme. And I guess that's like for the parents that brought their kids to it. He wakes up, and it's a beautiful it's morning. A full course movie, like we said. Right, yeah. A little something for everybody, I guess. He wakes up, he's in bed next to his wife, uh, Courtney Cox, plays Gail Weathers, of course, of all the previous incarnations. He goes outside, and you know this is how we meet all our characters. It's kind of like the opening of a sitcom. Hayden Pantier comes speeding by as her character, Kirby, who we will talk about much as this progresses. She goes to pick up Emma Roberts, who plays the Jill character, and is at this point we find out that she's Nev Campbell's cousin? No, not yet. Okay. Um, I thought she did. She she does say something about her cousin being like back in town or something. I don't know. You said it's like the opening of a sitcom. I think it's more like the opening of a Disney movie, minus the song, because you're just going like you know you're from one character and then the other. It's one kind of like the opening of Beauty by. and the Beast, walking through the city. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's it's really it's more like the openings of Scream two and three, where <laughs> they even they even reference this in Scream two after the murders when you know the press is is flocking upon the college where Sydney's at and and she meet you know you have that that uh you know bittersweet little moment where all the survivors of the first one kind of meet together and and i believe randy you know the the true truly the smartest character in this whole series says something like nothing to bring a family together like a funeral and you know this is scream for living up to that we are also introduced at this time to jill and kirby's friend olivia who you know she might as well be sylvester stallone because she is expendable i didn't even take the time <laughs> to write down the actress's name uh, yeah, not even one of the good expendables like Terry Crews, you someone know, that like, makes a mark. You can tell by seeing how hot she is and her interactions with her friends, she going to be the first to go. I would hope you could have seen that coming. I, I, I didn't because I was just, I was still trying to figure out what was real and what wasn't. Yeah. I didn't know if it was still like, we were watching like Stab 8. I, I gave it like, I gave it like a good 20 minutes before I could figure out like if we were really in the real world. There's some real interesting semi-interesting like gender politics going on with this movie when it's not just you know hating on women it, it, it goes both ways and I think this is this is probably another uh, intended meta meta bit where in these horror movies you have your main girl but you absolutely cannot have have other survivors that are hotter than the main girl which is why they have to go which is why Kirby has that ridiculously over boy haircut well, I thought it was more, uh, uh, I took it as Hayden Panettiere just trying to distance herself from her groundbreaking role as Beth Cooper. And she just wanted to look as different from Beth Cooper as possible. Uh, see, I, I also thought she was, you know, she's the closest, you know, the, the truest in spirit to this movie's version of Randy. So I thought she was trying to ape his look. See, I didn't think that she was Randy. I, <laughs> I thought she was Rose McGowan. Oh, just no. nowhere near as hot. Like, mind you, I'm talking 96 Rose McGowan. There's, there's at least three Randy... Surrogates, in right? Because you can't you can't replace Jamie Kennedy with just one person. You need to bring three actors to it. It's true. Is a franchise. But... Yeah, I mean, I remember the uh, what was it the like the experiment or the Jamie X, X his hidden camera show oh. his uh, C, his WB version of Punked. Yeah. Yes. 
He, he, <laughs> I thought you were going to say something <laughs> nice about it. No, he, he, the name brings a lot of weight with it as well. You get, yeah. yeah. Listen, I mean, I've, I've, and I'm not kidding about this. I have, I bought and read Jamie Kennedy's autobiography, and I gain a lot of respect for his performance. Was it a, after that. <laughs> you think of was it a the, flip book? It, <laughs> it, it was a pop up book. Uh, but it was that ends uh, at screen two. Yeah. It was the book ends. The book ends with uh, with the Jamie Kennedy experiment. That's the, like that's ah. the last chapter of the movie, and uh, or, or that's the last chapter of the book, which I guess is a good point to like if you want to end it on a high note because then after that I don't think like after they cancel the show, what else has he been in? I thought he was on what, what Ghost what did, Whisperer for a while. I mean, he went, he went on to you know modern comedy classics like Malibu's Most Wanted and Kicking It Old School. And I joke, but I, you know, I actually do enjoy Jamie Kennedy, the persona. Um, although Son I did not Mask. see Son of Mask, so, Ooh, no. wow. you know, th- that could change. Uh, what did he, I guess my main question is, what did he have going on that he couldn't even be brought for a cameo? He got killed in Scream 2. Well, yeah, but he's in Scream 3. Well, he didn't. Yeah, he, you know, like, he I didn't. Three, but I know that much. He, much like a lot of things that happened in this movie, it was a cheating way of bringing him back for Scream Three. Well, he didn't have the foresight at the time to know, you know, because he died way before the reboot craze ever happened. Exactly. So, you know, he didn't think to record anything like that because he, he thought horror would. If you he thought it would bring... follow its trajectory and, and continue to, you know, become the highest he, art form. He died before, you know, Sir Robert Zambarelli came and changed the game with his Halloween remake and then the craze took off. I think if you want to bring Jamie Kennedy, then you find a way to bring him back. I don't care if it's just like through like He's going to be so old. Though. Or they could do like uh Terminator Salvation and have CGI. I just watched Ant Man last night, and they make Michael Douglas look like he's thirty in one scene. So you yeah, could have you I could mean, have done like a Michael little bit Douglas of Jamie Kennedy. Is also a sexual tyrannosaur. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Kennedy is just yeah, he's a normal guy. Yeah, if they wanted Jamie Kennedy, they could have gotten him in there because this, as as we'll see, this movie is not really bound by the rules of logic, which is one of the great things about the movie. Speaking of sexual tyrannosaurs, the next scene we move along to Wendy Peppercorn, uh, who in this film <laughs> plays the insane, absolutely bonkers Deputy Judy, uh, played by Marley Shelton. She is the, you know, the... She's what Dewey once was, as yeah, you pointed she's, out. She's the modern Dewey, the, the wide-eyed, naive, eager-to-please sheriff. You know, she's, she's new on the scene, wants to really make a change in the world and nobody believes or you know nobody takes her seriously except that as far as i from what i remember one dewey was never a suspect in scream one did you ever think that dewey was uh, no he was, was he was too lovable and dopey but exactly still, both but of y'all are forgetting the first rule of scream everyone's a suspect yeah well i never okay i, I, I don't think i that. ever yeah i don't think i ever never thought that dewey, dewey could harm like a single being but but also so and then there's the other thing like the charm that dewey had i mean that's that's why we always see him talking about lemon bars eating ice cream and other movies like we don't see him handling weapons for the most part because he's got two attached to his body that's what led him to the world heavyweight championship also he's a terrible shot as this movie proves Uh, we'll get to oh yeah hey i mean that's movie's a terrible shot that's just this movie has its finger on the pulse of the world so well because this you know right on the precipice of all sorts of you know police on on civilian violence and and this is just oh it was right there yeah you know hot hot hotheads that have weapons you know geez what what else can we say 
We, I, I guess what I was saying is just that this new deputy has nothing. Just like those three kids that are supposed to replace Jamie, Jamie Kennedy have nothing on Jamie Kennedy, this new deputy has nothing on, on, on Dewey, which might well, be the point of the movie. It could be, but she's also one of the few characters that actually learns, you know, she's one of the new characters that is a mirror of somebody from the original, and she actually learns from her uh, originator's mistakes, as we'll find out later with the bulletproof vest. Oh, but. so she's less charming, but she's smarter. I, can, yeah, I mean, you have that. to make compromises. That's what life's about, as, as Scream 4 is teaching us. <laughs> Moving along, and not quickly enough, we get our formal introduction to Gail Weathers here, who Jesus Jones just Botoxed out of her mind, <laughs> and she is writing a new book. Is that what's going on here, I guess? I couldn't yeah. tell. She's just got a big bowl of fruit. Well, I mean, she's you know, it's the typical frustrator writer, or frustrated writer thing where she's just staring at the blank page and, you know, just trying to crack that nut and, until she eventually breaks down and then writes profanities and then yells them yeah, I mean, for, you I can, know, for the I full AV experience. I, I can relate. I'm sure Eddie can relate. You can relate. How many times have you been in front of the, like, the blank screen and, and then you turn the TV on and some other dudes like, you know, has a bestseller about the same thing you're going to be. Uh, I mean, it's also, it's, it's also another, you know, reference to real life and just, you know, in this day and age, we're just overwhelmed with choices. Like with the blank page, you could literally write anything. So where do you start? You know, you turn on a TV, there's a billion channels. What are you going to watch? You know, you go to a library. How do you know where to go find the book you need right now when you have every book? Yeah, and it might be, you know, really a, a moment, a true moment of honesty uh, where Kevin Williamson and, and uh, Wes Craven just just stop the the jokes and the games for a moment and just say, you listen, this is how this process started. We're like, how do you follow up the first three screen movies? How do you, how do you follow up the trilogy? Well, it starts a blank page and we were just like yep. staring at it for a long yeah. time. I, I, I felt the pain there. Every journey steps with the starts with the first word, which the word to this movie should have been. No, but moving along, we go back to the school, much like the first one, you know, the day must go on. We're introduced to the nerd brigade of Charlie and Robbie, Charlie played by, one of the many Culkins, Rory, and Robbie, played by Eric Knudsen. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name. Only thing I knew him from was uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Well, that's uh, funny because when I saw him, I thought he looked like Michael Sarah. Yeah, and, and I he, wrote he down really like, does. I was like, like, poor man's Michael Sarah playing the poor yeah, man's less, Jamie Kennedy. Less lanky and scrawny, but you know, every bit, every bit the uh, tech savvy pop culture nerd. And much like all the like the new characters here, just I mean. It's Michael Sarah minus the charm. I, I just I couldn't stand that guy. So I guess these two guys are like composite characters of Randy in that they are big film nerds and they know like in and outs and uh, one of them's got a, the camera that he wears on his head. I wonder if that's going to come into play later. Yeah, I think one of the, you know you, this is where I think the movie kind of gets into like interesting failure territory. But there's you know what's so good about. The original Scream is that there's only one Randy, but in this movie, everybody wants to be Randy. Like everybody knows the rules. Everybody, you know, wants wants to be the man. And you know, reflecting our times, you know, what's what's cooler than being a nerd right now? Yes, but I I have to say that I think the miscalculation is that you. I'm assuming you're supposed to kind of like these guys because that's the whole thing. You know, it's like it's he's it's, a Culkin. It's, 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 he's genetically created to be likable, right? But then you attach him next to this this douchebag that wears a camera on his head the entire time. It's like you can't. And I'm surprised that a, a filmmaker as experienced as Wes Craven uh, made the mistake. But you just can't like somebody that wears a camera on their head the entire time. It's just that automatically makes them just 
terrible people. I, I, I kept waiting and hoping for this guy to be one of the first victims, but he makes it almost all the way to the end, so that was disappointing. We are introduced to the biggest red flag of the film so far, a character who is almost a caricature of a caricature of an ominous character in Trevor, played by Nico... Tortelli. Tortorelli, excuse me. Nico Tortorelli. Tortilla? Tortilla. Poor man's Chris Evans, as I have it on my notes. Ooh. Dude, he's he's, Especially the, when he's the like poor man's cardboard cutout. <laughs> <laughs> but but he, he's also kind of ingenious and, and deceptive in his his blandness. Of course, he is meant to play the Skeet Ulrich, the Billy character of the, I guess, on-the-edge boyfriend of the main character, which, of course, in this film is Jill Emblem Roberts. I think he just kind of slept through a lot of acting school. Cardboard cutout is an Well, I mean, when you, you look like him, why would you go to acting school? Because, you know... You know, yeah, nobody kind of look like Chris Evans. Yeah, I mean, you know, another another comment on modern society's people, you know, that entitlement and just wanting to coast on stuff without having to work. And, you know, that that dude works really hard on his hair, I assume. I mean, he he puts a lot of effort into his look. So, you know, you do that. You don't need talent. Yeah, I can see how he is. He is bland. He, he's kind of like the bland red flag, but by design. It's kind of there. There are so many characters in this movie that you kind of have to take shortcuts on some of them. And his was the easiest shortcut that you could take because you're already you know you're going to suspect the boyfriend. Yeah, he's, right from the bat. He's you, in you know, a right real from the start. So Trevor is like the old Bennigans that haven't yet been redesigned, and that you're driving down the highway and they catch your attention. You think that's a Bennigans, you know, but it's not. So he's meant to be the one that you see, and like that's the killer. But of course, he turns out to not be. Yeah, I, I just love the fact that I've actually eaten at a Bennigan's a oh, long time too. ago. But and it just it blows my mind that they came up in this episode. Well, I, I've no. never eaten at Bennigan's, so my my reference point was seeing you, you, you know remodeled out. chilies over the years. <laughs> well, chill is still going strong. But anyway, anyway, back to the cardboard man. He's unlike Scream franchise. Yeah, chilies he's is still going strong. He's he's put in a really tough spot. Just, you know, because like like Julio said, everybody is going to automatically be suspecting the boyfriend, especially as the movie goes on and it becomes clear, uh, you know, how how indebted this movie is to the first one. So he's he's kind of, you know, subverting expectations while, you know, making sure he pops up every now and again amongst, you know, just to remind us of how good looking he is, you know, give us a break from staring at at the Colkin and the, the headset nerd. Now, that said, he is pretty dumb, though, because, like you said, everybody in this movie seems to be aware of, of the movies and of the, the tropes and everything. So he has to know he's the prime suspect. And yet every time that he shows up, he's acting like he it's... shows up like a serial killer. Yeah. Just, so that fucker should be bringing walking into houses and stuff. I mean, he, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, at least, you know, the movie is honest about it because. You know, he he may be dumb, but he suffers the fate of a dumb person. You That's know, true. Getting yeah, shot in the dong. I was about to say he has uh, arguably one of the worst deaths ever captured on film. <laughs> um, it's at this point though we find out there has been a murder in Westboro, as everyone becomes aware that Friday Night Lights and Dan in real life ate it the night before. And you know the, the show must go on. School continues. We go up to the book reading where Sydney, you know, is reading little excerpts from her book, and Gail Weathers shows up there, I guess, to just reignite the tension between her and Sydney because right away they're. You know, cats and dogs, or in this case, you know, cats. I, w- I was surprised. At. I mean, granted, I missed like a movie and a half in, in the franchise, but I-, I was actually surprised that they hugged. I mean, it it was more civil than I expected. Well, I mean, by the end of Scream 3, they had, you know, they they 
made it to to much better turn terms they're they're never going to be best of friends but they've gone through know, some they, shit. they've come a long way from when when sydney used to knock her out in the front of the high school 15 years ago <laughs> well almost 20 years ago now from when we're recording but 15 from when they were filming <laughs> the punch heard around the world dewey Sh- sheriff dewey shows up along with you know insane deputy wendy peppercorn because they're reporting responding to the murders and also there has been a call placed from within the vicinity of the bookstore they're tracking it down, and they track it to Sydney's rental car, and they open the trunk, and there's the cell phone there, which somehow has miraculously called them. A bunch of blood and a bunch of ghost face posters everywhere. Boring, but this is where we're really introduced to Ebony and Ivory and our main two shining lights of this film, Adam Brody and Anthony Anderson playing the inept cops on the force. They are they a match are, made in heaven. Yes, they. I really, I really wish that. I guess if we had been more successful, they would have had their own like spinoff web series or something. That just it's just them sitting in a car talking about stuff. Well, it'd have to be a prequel. <laughs> oh no, spoilers! <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I got the feeling that they they showed up for one day of shooting. They had like you know the daylight scenes early on, break for lunch, come back when it's dark, and then just sit in that that. Uh, police car and just shoot the shit for for a solid four or five hours and then you know five minutes of that made into the movie it, when it, you have actors that that charming and engaging and funny like why you know you just you just let them go you know they're right. not, not like the rest of the cast thing. that needs to be corralled <laughs> it really reminded me of julie delpy's role in the latest avengers movie you know we've got her until 4 p.m let's make this count so they only had him for a little bit just intense eyes <laughs> give us intense eyes one thing i, I wanted to mention and make sure you guys caught it was uh, again, the you know the re- recycling, repeating idea of this movie, where in Scream Two we had Gail as a big, big time, best selling author based on this story, and now in Four we've got Sydney as the author, the best selling author, telling this story, which is another you know kind of backhanded shot at the audience, asking you know kind of asking like how many times are you going to turn out for this. <laughs> And the, and the answer is, when it's this good, we'll keep coming as, for as long as you'll make them. Well, I'll tell you, like, the problem with that is that this movie reminded me, it, it, it was around that time when I was just like, okay, I get it. You know, this is like that, and this is like that, and this is like, we're just mining the past three movies for all they're worth. Uh, but but it's also kind of like, but we're not really, because we're doing this instead. It just reminded me, back in high school, there was this, uh, uh, I remember my friends and friends of uh, my friends, we have we did this thing where it was like passive aggressive fighting. It was like, no, we're not really fighting, but we're really fighting. So they would be like, they would be having an argument, a really stupid argument, and they would say really mean things to each other, and then they would laugh at the end. Like that would take the, the edge. So it's like here, like, oh, we're aping the franchise, but not really because I mean, it's, it's all in the the spirit of you know friendly competition. Like everybody, you know, you see something, and one of your first thoughts is, I could do that better, and then you know that's. This is how you get into things like the um, riff offs and, and whatnot, you know, like those uh, those legendary riff sessions that you see in Judd Apatow movies. <laughs> I, I, I thought you were talking about lip sync battles for a moment, and actually, that's that's very like. This well, I mean, is, any is, any kind of battling, you know, it, it doesn't matter what it is. No, but you see, know. Th- that's a pretty good like. This is Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven lip syncing through the last three screen oh, movies. Oh yeah, this is a total karaoke job. <laughs> You know, you, you queue up the first one and then you just go and then you, you know, where you can, you twist it and make it your own and you make it better. Karaoke is enjoyable. This is, if oh, this yeah, is I mean, karaoke, you, this is like. You play the classics and you, you do them like they should have been done originally. It, it depends on the song. 
It depends on the song. If like, this is karaoke, Karen... this is the fat guy in the Alice in Chains shirt doing a Metallica song where he's got both hands on the mic, eyes closed, just going to town. <laughs> oh, I mean, well, of course, those are the best guys. The ones that, that look like total goobers walking up to the mic and then just blow you away. And you're, you're like, hey, I think, I think hey, it's Metallica a, singer. I think it's <laughs> a duo. I, I think it's a duet. And you have Williamson's eyes are closed. I think Wes Craven, he's probably just more like the board guy that's doing the backup vocals and you know he's there just to get laid oh yeah he's he's definitely the the tom DeLong to <laughs> kevin williamson's mark hoppus there you go jill olivia and kirby show up at the police station i guess to oh no they're there to report that you know ghostface called them but in this day and age of you, these teens with their fucking apps there's an app that you can talk like ghostface so who knows? Again, everyone's a suspect. Well, I, you beat me to it. It's this yep. scene in particular that Dewey says everyone's a suspect as Sydney comes in and, you know, can I help in any way? And then she tries to go back home or some shit. And he's like, you can't leave. That's a terrible David Arquette impression. <laughs> that sounds more like Ghostface than David Arquette. <laughs> Sid, you can't leave. Now, at what point, again, I missed a, a, a movie and a half. So at what point does David Arquette become the sheriff? Does that happen? Do we see that happen? In the... It's sometime... It's sometime in the tenure gap between three and four, because in part two, he was out or I forget what he was doing, but I don't think he wasn't on the force. And then in part three, he was working in private security. He basically became what Orlando Bloom would have become had he stayed in Louisiana. He became he became <laughs> Mr. Gail Weathers. And, you know, he, he was a loving and supportive husband while while Gail pursued her. Writing passion. While we were watching this, I just thought that he was like the Forrest Gump of the of the Scream franchise, where he's like, you know, he's made it this far. You know, no he's matter, he's just there for every historic event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Somehow, no, no matter how stupid he looks, he's gonna be there. I know, I know. Somehow he's made it through uh, uh, through all the killings. Because uh, halfway while we were watching this, at some point, I remember that the last thing I'd seen of Dewey was him getting stabbed in, in Scream Two, and then somebody told me he survived. I was surprised oh, that he. The had. only thing he's resilient, man. Any grown man that can walk around with the name Dewey like on their chest. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, the only thing more uh, indestructible in horror movies than the killers is the you know the lovable puppy dog of a human. There's a reason he's a former world heavyweight champion. He actually comes to the rescue later that night. Uh, and actually one of the scenes I actually enjoyed in this film because it seemed to like have some flow and humanity to it where he's comforting Sydney. Um, while we get a shot of Kirby, Jill and Kate, the mother of Jill, the aunt to Sydney played by Mary McDonald, who Eddie pointed out to me was supposed to be played by Lauren Graham. Get to that later. Was the- it Heather Graham? Lauren. Oh, okay. No, no, I, that, I, that would that would Heather Graham. I was like, oh, oh no. Even even for a scream, this would be way too much meta to have Heather <laughs> in the scream part and as, also in a stab and also in stab. That would just be. It'd probably be too good. I hope they don't take that idea for Scream Five. I did notice too much. I did notice though they're eating Chinese takeout. So in a city where a murder. Well, yeah. Is, if you're eating leftovers, you may as well eat the best ones and. Yeah. No, it looked like it was just delivered. Scream so, 4 is the Chinese takeout of movies. You know, the driver couldn't just call in sick. You know, there's a murder on the loose, but God damn it, I'm going to deliver this food. Well, he had watched well, the there's, previous There's honor in, in seeing your job through to the end. Well, he had seen the, the previous Scream movies, and he was like, oh, nobody kills As a delivery guy there. West Craven, yeah. yeah, they never showed delivery guys in the others, so why, why would he feel threatened? Touche. Uh, we get the Billy and Sid scene here, the PG-13 R-rated scene. Um where Trevor shows up in Jill's room, and it's almost a shot-for-shot shot remake of the first one. Some may call this lazy. Others in this film no, it's, might say it's No, it's loving homage. And, and, you know, they, they they want us fully aware of what's going on at all times. Oh, this oh, they, this they is the first movie. Aware. I agree with yeah. that. 
They yeah. were, I, I kept waiting for the camera to like turn around and show uh, what's Craven going, huh? Oh, yeah. Hey, <laughs> you get I it? mean, that's, and you know, if you want to see that, go watch Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. But, <laughs> which, you know, in that movie, they had, they do have the Scream version where a monkey is the killer, which we're not far off from and it's going to be amazing <laughs> they're building up to the 10th yeah but one one of the little another another great detail about this movie you know playing again on the trope of the indestructible killer uh we see in jill's room a poster for youtube which or youtube that was that was real dopey i mean for youtube which joshua tree yeah which is you know First, you think you see it, and you're like, "Why would this character like you two in this day and age?" But then you realize, you know, they're never going to go away. And then, if a couple years after this movie, they invaded all of our iPhones and were impossible to get rid of, which it's like the Scream franchise. I mean, again, am- amazing foresight on the the franchise's part. You two reinvents itself uh, constantly, much like the Scream yeah. movie reinvents. Well, I mean, itself. sometimes they let someone else stand at the front of their band pictures. So Sydney comes up, and I guess Trevor takes off, and Sydney tells Jill, "You remind me of myself." Good night. Shuts the door, and then we get genuinely the most terrifying scene of the movie, as insane deputy Wendy Peppercorn is just standing in the shadows, and you can't see her, and she's, she be, she's pulling a Clint Eastwood and Million Dollar Baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> emerges from the shadows, asking Sydney about their high school days. Well, everybody in, everybody in these movies gets killed in, in, under bright lights, so why wouldn't you hang out in the shadows? <laughs> That's true. But, you know, just because she's not the killer doesn't mean that she's not scary. This is the thing. She's been really creepy, and I mean, she has she, a gun. She's aware that she's a suspect, so, you know, you, you have to play up the role of... In this world, you have to play the role of both suspect and potential victim. It's a real tightrope, and she, she walks it very well. She's just like, she's saying goodnight to Sydney. I guess because all the cops are just chilling there. We get Brody and Anderson. They're out front, you know, just watching the block, making sure nothing too heavy goes down. Talking about movies. Yeah. And then we get a shot. Uh, we go back. And then we go back to Jill's room, and she and Kirby are up there watching Shaun of the Dead when they get a call from Trevor's phone. And wouldn't you know it? It's Ghostface on the other line. That's, that's a mistake. That's a mistake for them to put Shaun of the Dead there because really, you're making. You need to put a lesser movie. Yeah, you're, it's, you're you're really you know raising the standard. You have to be very careful with your references. I, I agree. This is a part where the movie missteps because you you get something that's you know a, a superior version of this sort of story, and which is why the movie works best with with all its other you know U two Halloween two, all those other references at the school the Green Mile like this is. This is right, why you, referencing lower you have material. to reference down. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Shot of the Dead. They they kind of much, yeah, much like when Community there. used to make fun of Glee in its first few seasons. This is Dan Harmon strikes again. <laughs> Ghostface is on the other line to inform Kirby and Jill that he's in the closet, much like Tom Cruise on South Park. I um, mean, it's another another commentary thing because you know at that point in time we were you know everybody was all up in arms about equality and. And there you have your killer just lurking in closets, just waiting to be accepted for who he is or she. They then open the closet to reveal nothing but some ratty clothing. And the killer informs him, I didn't say your closet, pan across the street. Well, yeah, what, what, what gay, possibly gay killer would hang out in that closet? You, we've seen how she's been dressing the whole time. Like a goddamn lumberjack. And we go across the street to hot friend Olivia's house. And he is sure enough in her closet. And like we talked about, she was just too hot to last. 
Uh, we do get a the shot movie, of, yeah, highlights that by having her, her immediately stripped down to her underwear upon coming home, and then just standing in front of the window so her friends can just stare and you know just pay respects. And as the tagline of this film, "New Decade, New Rules," I guess the new rule is the killer kills the fuck out of people because he or she slaughters this Olivia girl. I didn't realize you could do that much damage with a little knife like that. He the just, entire room is covered yeah, in blood. Yeah, he paints the walls. It's uh, It goes a little overboard. It really doesn't seem to match the... I mean, it's pretty gruesome what we see Sydney runs across the street well, finds her like with her insides out. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, and we're definitely going to come back to, there's there's a real, you know, this movie really kind of hates people, and and this kind of is emblematic of that, and it it... It's something in retrospect you'll also learn where you kind of find out about like how much how much uh, you know we can hate each other or the person of the opposite gender. Uh, no, I think that uh, there is uh, it doesn't really match what you see. You know, you see her getting stabbed, but then when uh, Sydney gets into the room and there's like blood everywhere, it just reminded me of uh, that Mel Brooks movie, The Dracula parody that, that he did where there's a point where they're uh they find a vampire in the coffin and then they just like hammers uh uh stake like on uh on her chest and the amount of blood that comes out of like every time they hammered it in it's just insane it's just spraying everywhere that's what it reminded me of one like, could say it was done for almost comedic effect or like when she comes back to the room and there's blood everywhere it's like she's returned to her nightmare yeah uh, you know i couldn't have said it better better myself and you know, I, I'm not sure why the, you know, the level of the violence is that surprising to you, because this is a series that started with Drew Barrymore being stabbed like seven or eight times and having her guts hanging out. Like we had in the first 10 minutes of screen, we had two people literally with their guts hanging out. It was just done a bit more tastefully and, you know, it made a bit more sense to me. back. Yeah, there the might be one point where the trying to outdo the original kind of kind of, you know, showed. Uh, showed the weaknesses of this. Well, yeah, that's because you, it, just much like with Dewey, like you innately care about Drew Barrymore. So, yeah, it's a big deal that she gets killed. And well, I mean, know. she's the hot girl, right? Like, I mean, aren't we all invested? Sydney, like we said, runs across the street to face her past and comes face to face with Ghost Faced. Jesus comes face to face with the killer, and you know they get in like a little fisticuff battle, but not enough. And the cops show back up, but Ghostface has already fled the scene. Yeah, but she—I mean, she kicks ass. I was actually pretty surprised. Uh, but again, she's another, always she's always done this. Has she? Well, okay, I've only seen like the first one, and have she seemed kind of helpless in the in the first. No, two. any. I mean, she she did you know a lot of running away, but whenever it came down to you know whenever it was time to throw hands, she was. You know, she's arguably the best fighter in the world in this movie. And, you know, Deputy Dewey's lucky they never met in real life or we'd have a different world champion. <laughs> well, I guess I guess I was I was not ready for her to just take charge the way that she did, uh, you know, having missed some of her evolution, I guess, as a character, because she runs into the house. Oh, yeah. She has absolutely no regard for her safety. She really has nothing invested in this girl. It's not like that's her cousin. It's just like the neighbor. One may call it hubris, though, that she survived this so many times. She just feels that she's destined to again. One one day, though, she does. You know, one one criticism I do have is that one day she needs to learn that while she's in the middle of beating up these killers, she should just grab the mask and rip it off. <laughs> I mean, there's no need for secrecy. Like it would. And she's all about stopping the killer, so why doesn't she expose them when she has the chance? Everyone flocks to the hospital where the victim and Sydney, and because Jill kind of gets stabbed in the process, I think she gets her arm cut. Oh, yeah, she got a boo-boo. She she got the boo-boo. The nerds are back as Charlie and Robbie 
many you can ones? just call them nerd one and nerd two. <laughs> but they're cut off by Gail Weathers, who pretty much uses her sexuality to manipulate them in that, you know, they've never talked to a girl before. Because um, they're the new Randy, so she's been in this situation before, so she wants to talk to them about what the rules are. And they agree to it, but she has to show up in their nerd class, right? Yeah, they have like they host they have like a film club or something and uh it, and yeah, I guess the big joke is that she thinks that she has them won over, but really what they want is Sydney. So so really she tries to use her sexuality but they just want Because uh, these kids aren't Randy. They she thinks they are, but you know No, they're they're Which to be fair, that's all Randy ever wanted. He had a big crush on Sydney. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, they were yeah, they're just hipsters. The next generation of Randy's one once again, you know, kind of well, this was a new point I think for the movie, but just kind of showing that you have to be eventually you have to become yourself you can't just keep trying to be what you thought was great in the past you you need to become your own person and then you get killed sydney's uh, released from the hospital as upon her release she immediately runs into rebecca allison brie her pr agent who's talking about how big this is and how many books are going to sell and all the shows that she's going to be booked on and sydney asks her did you actually read my book and allison brie says i was waiting for the movie and then sydney promptly fires rebecca um won't be the worst thing that happens to Rebecca as immediately after this. No, she gets that the would call be uh, season five of Community, probably. Ooh. Uh, Shots fired. She gets the call from Ghostface as she's walking to her car in the parking garage. And this is a much more agile Ghostface. I will give the film that because he's running and jumping <laughs> and just kind of all over the place. Clearly a more wiry frame. But he stabs her in the stomach. And then Dewey, on the bottom level, is hosting a press conference about how everything's under control. And wouldn't you know it, she gets thrown off the top of the parking garage onto, what was it, a squad car? No, the no, news van. A, yeah, the news van. Ah. That was, I mean, she gets, it takes forever for her to, to actually get stabbed. And really, she makes so many mistakes that at this point, maybe it's because she doesn't have a counterpart in the in the franchise, in the trilogy. Before, there's a brand new character that doesn't really mimic anyone, right? So maybe that's why they, they were just trying. They didn't know what to do with her. I felt like, you know, she showed up and they, you know, they just introduced her as like this, the typical soulless agent. Yeah, well, she's kind of sort of similar to, to young Gail Weathers. Not totally, but just the, the part, you know, the narcissistic and side of Gail that was, you know, really focused on how this could benefit her. And that, they kind of get that here, but, you know, they kind of make that the only thing the character is about, which uh, well, that and and her uh, uh, neckline, obviously, um, which <laughs> it's it starts alongside her. <laughs> <laughs> we go to school the next day, and shockingly, school is not canceled. Like all these people are dying, and there's a murder on the loose. But we're there with the nerd class, as we discussed, the film class. They've got Sydney and Gail as their special guests, and I guess this is where they're talking about how. This is where they're rewriting the film. Am I correct? They're talking about being a remake. Yeah, they, they basically their theory is that now this is a remake slash reboot. So the rules have changed. This is a big like Randy scene, and uh, but of course these guys can't really pull it off. They're they're just uh, the only oh, yeah. thing. If, that... it, if it was Randy, it would have you know much more fleet footed like in the the first one in the video store. It would it would be fast, informative, and the scene would end. And in here, it, it just goes kind of goes on and on, but. Um, you know, it's not a total waste. I mean, we get to see all the nice posters they have up in their classroom. We do get an ominous shot of Trevor sitting in the background looking like he's ready to kill somebody. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, somebody could have easily 
put the cardboard cutout in the wrong spot that day. And it's it here we find out about Stabathon, which is this an annual event they host? Yeah, they say. Well, I yeah, assume one, right? like all the thons. Yeah. It's hosted on the anniversary of the Westboro killings. It's of course the place where they dress up like Ghostface and watch the stab movies. It's hosted by Nerd One and Nerd Two, um, and Gail needs to go to it, I guess, because she figures this is where something's going to go down because she's paying attention to the new rules and. It would be a real diversion, or yeah. I mean, just like part one, you know, the you know the whole third act taking place at at Stu's house, you you got to have a big party where everything kind of comes to a head. Gail gets to the scene, and starts planting cameras everywhere. Uh, Dewey calls her to see what's going on. She explains to him that killings at the Stabathon would be really meta, and in a very meta moment of the film, they discuss what the meaning of meta is. But then again, but it's they, not, they it's do it in like they do it in the old person way where they they say it, but they don't actually know what they're talking right, about they're and like, which was meta? was really kind of cool because it, it makes me think of like you know when my my grandparents try to work an iphone what is meta siri what is meta <laughs> what is uh, siri what is siri <laughs> no I, I i didn't think that they would meta enough if they were going to go this far because really what we as the audience are are thinking is that we're maybe halfway into the movie so there's no way that the party is the climatic moment that they're building up you know, building it up to be, which easily could have been something that either Dewey or uh, Gail could have said, which is like, it's too soon for for us to catch it. Uh, but no, they don't go there. They're just happy making the easy meta reference instead of going like full on and just turning to the camera and going like, we know it's only an hour into the movie. We have more to come. Gail goes back to check on the cameras that she planted and found one of them face down and then finds a camera watching her. And she, at this point, realizes that the killer is making the movie. The killer then appears and takes her down, is about to kill her when Sheriff Dewey shows up. And for being the sheriff of the town, my God, what a horrible shot. This is probably the first time he's fired his gun in years, maybe ever. Yeah, I mean, the it seems like the only time he even needs a weapon is when a screen movie is happening. So he <laughs> probably never even unholsters that thing. He fires, I believe, four shots off and misses every single one of them. The killer stabs gail but only in the shoulder it's almost as though the killer was just wanting to make a statement yeah and that that statement was really it was really coming from kevin williamson which is hey guys you know this we're gonna do something really weird here you're gonna need to remember this so so when instead of thinking why doesn't she why doesn't this killer take gail out which you know obviously is the best opportunity they've had we're going to do this, you're going to question it, and then it's going to make sense a lot later. It's beautiful writing. <laughs> it's called it's called setup. Setups and payoffs. Yes, that's that's textbook. We get more meta as we go back to the cop car in front of Jill's house with Brody and Anderson, and they're talking about how cops live and don't live in movies. The um, only thing that would make it more meta is if they were like, you show them like reading the script as they're going through the Yeah, script. either that or they just... They just admit defeat there and kill themselves because they know <laughs> there's no way out. As you would imagine, after the scene of talking about how cops die in movies, they are both killed by the uh, ghost face, the killer. Yeah, the and killer, like, he he appears to have been crouched down and then jumps out and runs, but he would have just been crouching by a mailbox where anybody could have seen him. He but... should have jumped up and at least said Ooga Booga before he stabbed him. He stabs Brody in the back and then in one of the more shocking scenes in any Scream film, stabs Anthony Anderson in the fucking forehead. It's in any Anthony Anderson movie, even, I would say this rivals uh, the ending of The Departed. It just I did not see that coming. 
like I, I knew that he was gonna die, but I did not expect him to die in such a dramatic way. And then say fuck Bruce Willis at the end. I yeah, mean, he doesn't die on impact. He he gets well, up and he, he's swinging for the fences. If but. it really was a movie, Bruce Willis would have saved him. So I can understand why he's mad. Is, is that really like the real? Because I, I thought that maybe it missed like a bit of dialogue. It, well, in a in a movie world where where you have the Bruce Willis's around to save everybody, he gets stuck with Seth Cohen, you know Dave Rogalski, you know the man. Adam Brody, he's awesome, he's funny, he's almost as inept at police work <laughs> as Deputy Dewey, and, uh, you know, they. It, it's it's really a shame, and that's why, you know, I, I'd be mad if Bruce Willis didn't save me after I was stabbed in the forehead, or before it. They say during their little back and forth that you, if you're a cop, you usually always die in a movie unless you're Bruce Willis, yeah. so that's why oh, that's what Anthony I missed. Anderson's final words are condemning Bruce Willis there. We go back in the house where Sydney's hanging out, just chilling, you know. Running a bath, and Kate, her aunt, comes <laughs> just back. like like you're supposed to do when you're in a horror movie. Well, and then her aunt Kate comes back, Jill's mom, who has been grocery shopping, and <laughs> she says, "I've got one more bag in the car. I'll be right back." Which, of course, is- yeah, it was, it was really, really rude of Sydney to not offer to go and help. Oh, you know what's funny? Like I just remember this is yeah, this scene is when like she's yeah, Sydney's alone at home and then she hears like a noise outside, right? And then she grabs a knife. Yeah. And then I was like That's how she survived. She can't take any chances. Right, but then that's like that's what I was thinking. Like, you know, any program people they would be like, you know, none of this would have happened if Sydney had a gun. But then of course (laughs) when she goes out there it's her aunt. Well, I mean it's it's beautiful commentary on that idea, you know. Someone's killing you with knives, and you think, oh, I, I better get a knife. I'll be safe. But no, you know, you just introduce more weapons of destruction, and, and that's what you get. I mean, see, you'll we'll see this again later when, when they start bringing guns into the mix. <laughs> Kate comes back in with the last bag of groceries. During her long trip to the car, Sydney discovered that the killer is after Jill next. So they need to go find her because, of course, she's not well, duh, they. I mean, we, we all know that. You know, this this is Scream One, so we got to get the Sydney surrogate. So, right. well, yeah, you got to get the Sydney surrogate, which would be, I guess, the girl that looks like Sydney, uh, yeah, almost the most by design. Yeah, related, looks like her. Um, you know, you you got to save, you got to watch out for your main girl and preserve her till the end. So they go to go out the back door to leave, and they see Ghostface reflection in the wind chime. So they run to the front, which door. is really dumb. Sorry, I, you know, I, I am, I, I think this movie is pretty pretty great but you know you have to know these characters are so hyper aware you know you don't go out the back that's where the bad guys always come from you know that's that's where nothing good ever happens out the back door (laughs) uh so they go out the back dude that should be the tagline for scream (laughs) five nothing good comes out the back door (laughs) so sydney and kate try to flee from the front and the killer is up there again because again he's the most agile in the franchise's history they shut the door on him but kate crouches down kind of to her butt to scoot her back against to shut the door so that's where the mail slot is yeah we think that's all good and safe but then the killer stabs her in the back of the head through the mail slot. talk about a special delivery That was the funniest moment Always in the movie. It's supposed to be, I guess, this big moment, but I just, I laughed so hard I snorted. It was, it, it reminded me, it's like, uh, of a far superior film, Very Bad Things, where Jeremy Piven accidentally impales that girl on the, the coat hook. I don't know why she was, like, leaning against the door, because Sydney had already locked the door. 
by this point. So she, she could have old and winded. Oh, that's what she, I mean, she, she was, was catching. She her was breath. grocery shopping for a really long time. I, I imagine needed to die. Yeah. I imagine the grocery stores are probably the, the first things that closed down amidst all this mayhem. All the right. water bananas were gone. They had to go a long way. She had to go back and get that extra bag because so Sydney wouldn't help. That shot of adrenaline that came with like learning that her daughter was in danger that went away <laughs> as soon as they oh, closed the door. When, dude, when that goes away, you are you are done <laughs> until you get your third wind. Insane Deputy Judy's on the case though. She shows up asking Sydney, you know, what the heck a Rooney happened, and Sydney bails, leading Judy to suspect her. We get more importantly though, the movie's leading us to suspect judy since she shows up right after the killer runs away we go to kirby's house actually and there seems to be an after party um which is a very poor choice of words coming straight out the kitchen robbie is just getting really hammered just kind of wanders off on his own oh yeah he had like a, a whole one or two capfuls of something but it leads us to kirby and charlie uh, rory culkin and hayden pantier who had been teasing some chemistry the entire time oh no no but before this not, not walter white level chemistry this is more like your typical sixth grade have no clue what you're doing just throwing all the chemicals together and watching them go boom yeah there there is like a whole mix of elements that don't really match here because also a cardboard uh suspect like radium shows and up. hydrogen Yes. <laughs> Tra- yeah, I forgot Trevor shows up. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Hey, front door's unlocked. How many houses do you think he stopped at before he found one with the door open? <laughs> well, he was in a much different place. He still had his penis at this point, so I think he was really happy. He was like, hey, guys, I'm here <laughs> to protect you. <laughs> I just look like this. But he then f- he pulls the biggest crime of the entire film, and this is a film that has countless murders in it. He interrupts the kiss between Kirby and Charlie. Yeah, well, it, but you know, Rory Culkin's life led to this moment, and he yeah, ruined it. Interrupting it, nerd action is just, you know, that's a bridge too far. I agree, but also they were watching. They're uh, still watching the, these horrible stab movies, uh, which apparently were directed by Robert Rodriguez. At least the first. At one. At least the first one. I mean, he was he was probably. You know, those movies, they, they obviously, they remind me of the Saw movies where they were just every year you knew it was Halloween. So in this world, they have stab movies. So, so this in this world, Robert, Robert Rodriguez, Rodriguez he was, is... He's the James Wan. So by this point, he was, he was off directing his Fast 7. Robbie is outside drunk and wandering around, and he's trying to fix his little camera, which I, his destiny was this moment for his camera to work just as the killer is right in front of him. And he gets stabbed. A whole bunch. They make such a big deal about this little camera attached to his head. And it really never comes into play. Uh, I was really expecting him because, you know, he falls. He's drunk. So he falls. And then the camera turns. So now the camera's facing the back of his head. Or, you know, it's facing behind him. So now you can see behind him. And uh, so you would expect that at least you would see the killer before he does. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, the camera's pointing behind him. So... The camera's going to record the killer approaching him, and then he's going to get killed, you know, while he's seeing the killer approaching him. So, but no, he writes the camera, so the camera's seeing the exact same thing that he's seeing, and then the killer shows up in front of him and kills him. So what was the point of this? Why would you have him even, like, why would you go through all that trouble of setting up the camera? To keep you on your toes. Yeah, I mean, that's it, that's just who the character is. You know, he, he was always, you know, that's his gimmick. He's always on, like, like our TVs. right until it's too late. Yeah. I, I just felt like the movie was just uh, playing around a little too much. You would think this whole movie would be building up to something, and it just never does. I, I guess that was, yeah, that well, is my no, fault. I mean, it's it's not here to solve all of life's mysteries for us. It's here to to raise those issues, and, you know, it makes its points, but it's it's not here to do do all the work for us, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, you could argue that the whole thing with the camera is just a commentary on, on, on potential that's never 
reached you know it's like there, there was potential in that camera thing just like there was potential in this kid's existence and potential in like this the movie. life of it, uh, this franchise you know and and this is maybe uh williamson and anderson uh not williamson and uh Craven, uh, acknowledging that, well, no, sometimes potential is cut short. Life is cut short. Yeah, I mean, you know, having having your lives on, you know, broadcast to the world all the time, it, it's, again, the movie, you know, totally clairvoyant. But, you know, now this year we had we had the movie Unfriended with people dying on their webcams for everyone to Excellent see. Excellent film. Uh, we've got, you know, we're, we're not very far off. I think Eli Roth just did some, like, Snapchat murder mystery, and we're not far far away from you know someone's death being periscoped. I'm waiting for the Tinder killer. Oh, that's probably already. <laughs> I, I assume you, you, that's. Were you about to share too much? I, <laughs> I assume that's already happened, and, and you know, we just pretty soon we're going to hear the the probably really sad story about that, and then and then we'll move on. So Sydney shows back up. Jill's kind of disappeared. Sydney and Kirby kind of set off as a as a team, and they go into Kirby's basement because she knows her way around. We then see a bloody Charlie, really, a bloody Charlie, Rory Culkin banging on the door, asking to be let in, you know. And Sydney, flashing back to when she helped Stu in the first one, is reminded if you can't trust him, don't let him in. Because um, she like slammed the door in Stu and Randy's face, right? Yeah, yeah. So she's just playing out for number one, and so Kirby sells out Charlie, and he gets tied to a chair outside. And much like the opening scene of Scream One. With Drew Barrymore and her boyfriend Steve, she has to play a game and get these questions right, or else Charlie will die. I I, I saw you. I, I could feel how unimpressed you were by the questions because I even knew the answer to the first one. Yeah, they were lazy. Like the that's what makes. I mean, the first one's questions weren't all that hard. I mean, it's it's no, you know but, it's designed to to kind of like on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. The easy, the first questions are supposed to be obvious <laughs> obvious. <laughs> <laughs> layups just to you know get you to calm down and, and you know get you into a rhythm and then when you start to get cocky that's when they hit you with the the original slasher movie question but the, yeah much like that the first one had the brilliant friday the 13th question which is always genius because fuckers still get that wrong all the time we do get the winking nod of you know how out of control this remake craze is when the question is what popular horror movie remake and Hayden Pantier just cuts them off and names about 20 movies off the tip of her tongue that have been remade. I was surprised at how many of those have seen. I know. That's a matter of, like, I was like, my buddy Valentine got remade? Oh, no, wait, I, I watched that. Yeah, in 3D. Yeah. Had she not cut off the killer, I'm, I'm so sure she would have got this one wrong. And it would have been, you know, condemning the know-it-all generation that we're in right now because i she never mentioned any of the asian horror remakes and i know the answer is going to be one of those it's going to be the ring or, or pulse or something so you know the killer just hangs up the phone and turns the lights on and it seems like charlie's fine so kirby goes out to untie him unduct tape him and swerve city as charlie pulls out the knife and stabs hayden pantier multiple times he says to her she's dying it's not as fast as in the movies is it uh, is boy Ain't that the truth? Because she unties him, and he's just like standing there holding the knife in front of her, and then, then he delivers his line. Like, how does she not notice that knife? Well, much like much like Alison Brie uh, when she gets killed earlier, you know, this is also kind of, you know, Hayden Panettiere. Just it, she, she just she just had it coming. Yeah, she I knows mean, the killer is out there. That's what happens when when you let emotions get in the way. And you know, I, you know, I was just joking about it, but you know, in horror movies, you. You have to be very uh, pragmatic, and you ha you have to know that you know tied to a chair outside while you're locked safe inside 
You just got to let Charlie go. You know, you got to do like Rose does or, to Jack. At, at the very least, at the very least, arm yourself. I mean, she... Did you see her hairdo? She was armed. <laughs> Dude, that, that hair was... It, it was lethal it cotton. Was dangerous. That was again. I I'll give them. This, this is the this is the foresight. It, it, that was uh she was doing Miley Cyrus before Miley Cyrus was doing Miley Cyrus. But where Hayden, where do you think Miley got her got the idea from? Hayden Pantier is much she, hotter. She's being meta. So the first aren't aren't we all? So we now know that Charlie is the killer as he goes inside and kind of corners Sid, where uh, fulfilling the prophecy of, of Scream One with the uh, greasy, ratty haired. Dude, actually being the the one you should have been keeping an eye on the whole time, and then another ghost face appears and unmasks. Say what? <laughs> another ghost face appears and unmasks, and it's revealed that Jill Emma Roberts, the cousin of Sidney Prescott, is in fact the second killer. Um, they then bring out Trevor, who's duct taped, uh, much like Sidney's father in the first one, and then they have all their little trinkets and their GoPros and phones that they filmed everything with. And they're going to tie it all back to Trevor. Eh, I mean, <laughs> I, I, was, I mean, you got to have works. a fall guy. I, I, I guess that works. I, I, I'll confess that I was uh, uh, kind of underwhelmed by this whole thing because I was really hoping that when if the, Peppercorn was the killer, I, well, I mean, that, I would have had the same reaction to everything. Really, it's when you set yourself up for that, you know, when you know that anyone could be the killer, then they're really. You had to really come out of left field, like really, for me to be surprised by by this ending, you know. And and the whole like, oh well, the main victim or the main target is the killer. And that's not. I mean, I I think it's pretty genius because that that you know I've been railing against the people, you know, characters all all throughout the movie, you know, trying to live off off the the legacy of the first one and this is the one character who who knows that history and you know kind of takes control of her destiny and she's she's the most proactive one which is why i think this choice uh for her as as co-killer is uh pretty genius i'll give you that but i would actually i would have preferred it if it was like if you really guess let's be honest at this point it's not like the movie's trying to say anything story-wise or, or character-wise it's just really about like really messing with your mind and being like oh, yeah, self-referential it, so, it knows that the whole the whole time you know we've we've had three movies to train us on trying to figure out who the killer is going to be they know that so who's you know who's the most ridiculous choice they could be in? dewey well no because we we know deputy dewey he couldn't harm anybody or you know or short, of, short of it being sydney herself you, you know we have the next best thing champion so they pin it all on Trevor, and then Jill basically gives Trevor the worst death ever. I didn't mean for that to rhyme at all, but <laughs> he apparently cheated on her and took her virginity, and she's mad about it. And then you know, they are never, ever getting back together. <laughs> Cardboard Cutout, though, has this one moment of the film where he can act where he says, but I loved you. Oh, yeah. I mean, hey. When you when you've been it. shot in the nads, you'll you'll do and say anything to live. So she shoots him in the dick, which is just like humiliating to begin with, and then I mean, shoots general him. genital mutilation. Generally, uh, I shouldn't say mutilation. Are you against it? <laughs> well, I mean, well, personally, I'm against it. it for myself, but for you know, cheating dirtbags like Trevor, hey. You know, that got you into the mess, and, you know, that's how you got out. Okay, hang on. We're, we're not here in the Middle East, right? <laughs> this is, no, this but, is the United but States seriously, America. you know, 
you know, the Wayans brothers with Little Man and Hans Molman before us have taught us that crotch humor is hilarious. But Jill, you know, she I credit her for bypassing the <laughs> really, really obvious and simple joke. And she, you know, you think, oh, she's standing here kicking him. She's about to start kicking him in the nuts and it's going to be awesome. Nope. No, no. She subverts our expectations once again. So in Stab 9, George C. Scott will play Trevor. Well, I mean... And, ah, my groin. Probably. But yeah, give give Jill credit. You know, if she wasn't a killer, she's on the fast track to becoming Sheriff of Woodsboro because she has the, the best accuracy. Dude, dead shot in the house over here. Yeah, she yeah it takes him out there and then, bam, right in the forehead, gives him, giving him the old uh, Anthony Anderson treatment. Yeah, and that I had forgotten, actually, from watching, but also that's just awful. She makes him feel the pain of a dickless life and then shoots Right as, as he should. It's almost like a mercy kill. I but mean, this is where things get a bit interesting. That's where we find out he's actually not a cardboard cutout because he has feelings and reaction <laughs> to being shot. So they pin it on him, but she shoots him in the dick. So I'm just curious how her plan to play that off in the police statement was. But here, uh, I mean, he's obviously a attempted rapist. I mean, that's. That's what I would go with if I, if I took someone out like that. I'm afraid of how much Eddie's thought about this. <laughs> right, Scream 4 is is really amazing and grossly underestimated by the, the public at large. Even even our sharpest film minds, like Julio was quoting, they you know they failed to, to see all this, which is really, really alarming. It makes me question how much time I spend reading movie reviews. I have a Josh Larson quote for uh, when we for the real talk part. So their goal here, they being Charlie and Jill, is to frame Trevor uh, and successfully pull off the ending that Stu and Billy intended to have. So they go to stab themselves. It's interesting. They're so dead set on remaking this ending that they didn't take the time to watch the original ending to see how it goes wrong. <laughs> Because their plan is to stab each other to make it look like they were attacked, and Charlie psychs himself into it very like lazily and almost weaselly, and she stabs him right in the heart and kills him. You know, I think that's that's just great writing because he he you know he, he just her. yeah he you know made his feelings clear. He got that kiss, and then you know you love love the wrong person and they break your heart. In this case, rip it out. So he's dead, and then Jill stabs. Sydney in the stomach, I believe, and presumes she's dead, which, again, she didn't watch the originals at all because yep. she doesn't know how resilient she is. And then Jill just goes rogue pretty much on herself in that she begins inflicting damage to make it look like she's been a victim. She grabs Trevor's lifeless hand and rips her own hair out with it, and then she dives headfirst into a wall. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, so, it's so incredible. And this is the most, you know, the meta uh, meta -iest. In the most meta moment of the entire movie, and and she just totally nails it. Jill, she's so committed. And it was it's, uh, Emma Roberts' uh, Oscar clip. Oh yeah, the the only thing missing was pulling a TV onto her own head. <laughs> and her motivation for all this was that she grew up in the shadow of Sydney. Sydney being the star of the story, and now her whole plan is to make herself. Yeah, the star. you know, it's it's you know, it's a whole poor me. Like I I want all the attention. Me, you know, it's it's got to be about me all the time and. And uh, you know she's she's on the precipice of of getting those those rewards, but then reality is is about to smack her down. I mean, it is. I agree that it is the ultimate uh, millennial. Tale? No, I was gonna say millennial criticism, where it's like you know what this generation sucks, and we're gonna make a movie about how much they suck. And 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 in that sense, I mean, we I, thought that I, movie was it. Project X, but Scream Four really nails it in a way that you know Project X could only only wish. 
it could have achieved. Well, Project X made the mistake of announcing itself as that, where Scream 4 pretended to be another sequel oh, yeah, to the Scream no. franchise, but really was a pointed criticism to, to you know, you know yeah, the Yeah, Scream 4, you know, it, it knows that, you know, it's okay to be smart, but it's not okay to tell everybody how smart you are. You've got to let the people come to you on that one. Just like you can't give them all the answers, you know, by the time the movie's over, you got to make them think and, and let them realize that on their own. So we go to the hospital, the ER, as it were, and former world heavyweight champion David Arquette, Deputy Sheriff Dewey, excuse me, is talking to Jill about her injuries and how everything went down, and Jill's story is holding clear. We and- forgot to mention that in, in the self-destruction scene, which, you know, is on par with, with Edward Norton and Fight Club, uh, she, or, or Jim Carrey and Liar Liar. Yes, like Jim Carrey in that incredible bathroom sequence in, in Liar Liar. Uh, she she makes sure to give herself a stab wound, oh, and she right. does it. She gets herself right in the shoulder, which we told you guys to pay attention to earlier, which is the same injury uh, inflicted upon good old Gale, Wayne Gale Weathers. <laughs> That's the payoff yes. that we've been waiting for. Thank you. I, I had forgotten about that. I was just trying to you know get through it mentally. Um, so she says, I have a stab wound just like your wife, and, you know, the inept sheriff, David you know, Arquette. On, on the precipice of solving the first crime of his life, <laughs> again, ha, you know, has the rug pulled again, out from under him. misses the mark by a mile. Yep. Um, but he informs Jill that it looks like Sydney going to make it. She's going to be all right. So this obviously is fucking everything up for Jill. Um, as Dewey goes back to talk to Gail about everything and says, hey, you guys are Scar Sisters. She's like, how'd you know I was stabbed in the shoulder? You know, facial expressions in films are a very crafted art. They're tricky. I can say a bunch of bad things about this movie, but David Arquette, his moment of realization here was brilliant. Yeah, I, I think that that was he had been reading a different script because you know how there were like all these fake scripts running. So he didn't really know. And this is when you see him like realize in real life that was that what, was not Deputy Dewey. That was uh, David Arquette realizing what was really going on. In shame, when Michael Fassbender felt his shame, this was the reaction he was striving to achieve. Yeah, I mean the only thing missing here from both movies really is both characters dropping to their knees and, and just proclaiming. I have no shame as tears streak their faces as, as they realize uh, that, you know, the, the grave danger they've put themselves in and the people they love in. So Dewey goes to he's jetting through this hospital where it doesn't look like a fucking single soul is working. Gets back to Jill's room, but she's gone. Jill shows up in Sydney's room and says, you just won't fucking die, will you? And it's time to take her out. It begins punching her in the wound, which is just fucking vicious. It, it's, it's like a pretty brutal fight scene. And that's where and you punch really... somebody. I mean. Right, Sydney's bigger than but Jill. You got to do whatever. Just like five minutes ago, Dewey was saying that they think she's gonna make it. Like she's, she, he made it sound like she was, she was I mean, barely he, hanging on. Well, but well, Dewey may be, he he may be the you know head of local law enforcement. He's not a, He's a not trained a doctor. medical doctor, so <laughs> you know any anything he says there, you know. She could have just, you know, she could have had the uh, the little wimpy cut on her arm that Jill had earlier in the movie. And, you know, to him, you know, to him, any injury is life threatening. So she's attacking Sid and then hides as she hears Dewey coming and then kind of in an homage to. Which is one of the best jokes of the movie, because who would who would be scared of Dewey? <laughs> in an homage to his pro wrestling days as a former world heavyweight champion, David Arquette takes a bedpan square <laughs> across the face. Several and not, o- not only that, but. And true, amazing, you know, Looney Tunes going all out to sell this move. He gets 
thwacked once and then he spins around and she catches him again and she just you know keeps him spinning until he he finally can't take anymore and he falls down and then she stands over him and pummels him a couple more times a couple shots on the back just to finish the job um gail now makes her way in which i think she was still recovering because i completely forgot about her character and then she was in the hospital bed well yeah i never thought that her wound was that bad right Right. i mean it was it didn't look that bad but then it looked really bad when they were wheeling her into the hospital (laughs) <laughs> then, then it Died looked it, it still looked pretty bad heart. later on but then by the time that she gets out of bed to go help dewey she seems fine she doesn't she's not even bleeding like there's no like i don't know and i mean then, really i mean you know she wouldn't know this until she waited a few hours and and realized how she she felt but that that wound was totally cosmetic as, as we know from from Kirby, or not Kirby, from Jill's injury later. So Jill takes the gun away from Dewey, and it looks like she's about to shoot Gale when insane Wendy Peppercorn comes in to save the day. Judy dives and tackles, I guess, Gale over a hospital bed, and so the shot just flyers off and doesn't doesn't hit anybody. And um, she says, slide your gun under the bed, or I'm going to shoot Dewey. And we get this amazing moment of like the two women that love him locking eyes, like, no, this can't happen. Slides the gun across... And then Jill says, stand up. And then she shoots Wendy Peppercorn in the chest. Which is, you know, okay, what does she expect to happen? That's what I understand. You know, it's like, she's going to shoot Dewey. She's going to kill everybody, no matter what. What would you give her? At this point, I don't think it was really sure. But she shoots her and then tells Gail to get up. Gail shouldn't have gotten up because we know what's going to happen here. Yeah, I mean, this is really, I mean... You know, for as much as I like the movie, I, I, it, it pains me to bring up here how, you know, for everybody, especially Gail, everybody in this movie is aware of what happened in the other movies. They should know above, you know, she should know above anybody else that Dewey doesn't die. <laughs> so when you threaten Dewey's life, you know, you know, uh, Sergeant Dewey Jr., she should have just popped up and just shot her right away. Because, you know, we know Dewey's, you know, they know Dewey's going to live. And- right, because she knows that Dewey doesn't die and she is a new Dewey. So also she, yes, by, by mean, extension, she is uh, also. Yes. But I guess the movie is also making a commentary on how, like, true love will blind you. But so that also this it spins your y'all's little bullshit, like, theory aside because the new Sydney eats it shortly after this. So. Boy, it doesn't work if you if you change your allegiance. So you, oh, you know if you're getting okay. good Sydney, neutral Sydney, evil Sydney. So evil Sydney is completely different. So she has a different fate. So as she has Gail up, she you know is pointing the gun at her and just kind of spouting off some some mad dogging. And <laughs> in the background, Sydney's finagling with the uh, defibrillators and turning it up to what looks to be the highest possible setting. You know, when you're trying to save lives, you don't have time to play around. So I don't know why there isn't just one setting on defibrillators. <laughs> save lives. That's yeah. The, that's the one setting. Well, there should be the save lives and lives. <laughs> because she turns it up all the way and Gail asks for one final word of her life. And Jill's yeah. like, what is it? No. Yeah. Shout out to Brandon Curtis, lover of all all things terrible pun related. <laughs> And and Sydney or Gail just looks at her and just says clear and, and true says clear yeah just clear like she just hit her with some Spanish or something and get and Sydney gets up and says clear and defibrillates the fuck out of Jill's head and her head it's, her it's head. also that's kind of another you know Dan Harmon esque you know thing where Abed we all know his one of his catchphrases is cool cool cool. 
And here, you know, this is obviously, you know, that screen paying homage to community, which was in the middle of its run and at the height of its powers now. So they do clear, clear, clear. But, you know, eagle-eared uh, listener and viewers like us will, will undoubtedly catch and appreciate that. And talk about a good performance here, too. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone get, like, death by electrocuted as well as Emma Roberts just dropping to her Dude, knees. I once watched a movie. It was Urban Legend 3, Bloody Mary. Wow. And you there's watched a, a lot there of There is movies. a scene. No, this is a contender for best electroshock death. There is a, a moment where a character, a cop, uh, no less, he, he has to go to relieve himself on duty. And he's, you know, he's on the road somewhere. So he just pees on a fence which he does not know is electrified so he starts peeing electrical currents go you know go through the urine stream and zap this dude in the nads which is you know you know kind of proof to the the fact that you know nad pain is generally hilarious unless it's like violently being shot off or anything like that but uh the point remains you know there are a lot of great electroshock deaths out there if you're willing to look well i will say this like when sydney when sydney defibrillated the head of uh, of jill that was that lived up to my expectations that actually surpassed my expectations uh, the I only saw, way it would have been better is if they had gone full sam raimi and have jill's eyes pop out of oh, the yeah, sockets yeah, yeah, yeah. but still i wasn't even expecting for her to aim for the head you know i thought she was well, just no she knows sydney knows you yeah, know you can't from, take there's chances a, there's a reason from sydney billy she, yeah long. she shot billy timothy oliphant in scream 2 roman in scream 3 she knows you go for the head you know Shaun of the Dead learned from Scream 1 and 2 and 3. So, you know, Scream is just so, you know, so insightful and, and informative. But it is not to be as the killer comes back for one last scare. She grabs a broken piece of glass, Jill that is, and I guess it's coming to stab and just do some damage. Her brain's fried at this point. She's just going on empty. She's running off fumes. Yeah, instincts. Sydney grabs Dewey's gun, shoots her, and that's all she wrote as she falls down and cr- crumbles into a fetal position similar to the one that Sydney crumbles into. And then we find out that insane Wendy Peppercorn actually didn't die because she was wearing a bulletproof vest. Yep. Learning Happy from ending. the mistakes of, of Dewey past. Well, there's like, well, I, I no, guess it, it cuts to the end, like, the, the, like news. the first one where they pass through all the, the pan through all the news cameras reporting live from the scene of the Woodsboro, Woodsboro murders reboot. It, yeah. I, I, like I said, I think that as a as pointed criticism of the millennials, uh, it does it does a good job. It really oh yeah, it really exposes them for the phonies they are. Yeah, I mean, have you know, whenever you see news nowadays that try, whenever they try to incorporate new slang or or new vernacular, it's you know, it really shows the age of those people involved, and and this movie really captures that. I mean, they're I mean, having them talk about reboots and stuff, you know. They, they may as well have been talking about twerking. T-shirts, T-shirts, T-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling T-shirts, all for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers. Daniel Bryan, Bret Hart goes to Montreal, some dead guy, the Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza, not Wyndham and Bradshaw. Wrestling! SmartsLikeUs.com, 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 selling you wrestling T-shirts. Also available, buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. All right, so real talk which will open with uh, a few more quotes. Um, I had to bring up the Josh Larson quote because I, I found him and I, I just, I was like, oh, I'll pick this one. Uh, Josh Larson, uh, Larson on film says, watching it feels like watching an age retiree rouse himself for one more round of golf. 
Scott Weinberg from FearNet says, Scream was snarky, insightful, and sort of cool. Scream 4 is an agent hypocrite with delusions of insight. Daily Express says, The fresh bloom may have faded from the series, but Scream 4 is still smart, amusing, and more entertaining than the average horror film. And finally, in the ultimate Metacritic moment, Kevin Williamson from Jam Movies says, this installment is nowhere near the hip, serrated age blast of newness the original was in 1996. Suddenly, it's a horror thriller that, like, your parents are excited about. So, a lot more mixed opinions. My own, it's kind of mixed as well. I'm going to say that I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I'm right there with those quotes. <laughs> Despite what you may have thought from listening to the first half of this podcast, I really like this movie, and Eddie really doesn't care for it. Um, but this is Scream 4. It was directed by Wes Craven. It was written by Kevin Williamson. It was released on April fifteenth, two 2011. had a budget of $40 million, which was, upon reading, kind of surprisingly low to me. It grossed a box office of $101 million. It won the award for best horror movie at the 2012 Virgin Media Movie Awards. I think it's that TV movie. Award. Yeah, is that better or worse than an MTV <laughs> movie award and or a People's Choice Award? That's a this is Kevin Williams and Wes Craven awards. They 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 host at uh, Allison Brie's house. It was originally intended to be the first in a three part series, but due to the disappointing box office return, they don't know if they're going to make five or six yet. And it is an awesome movie. Uh, I could not disagree more. <laughs> uh, this movie, it's it's certainly fun and amusing, but it is really bad. It really, really bad. I see. I just I can't care one way or the other. I think that it was it was entertaining to watch. I don't think it's anywhere near as good or insightful as the people that were making it thought it was. Oh no, not uh, at all. But but it's not. I mean, I was not hating it. You know, I I think its main problem is that it's worried so much about being clever and being like self-referential that yeah. it doesn't give you any characters to care for. Uh, That's yeah. One of the the notes I had written down was that one of the big differences for me between uh, this Scream One and Two versus Three Four and the twenty minutes of the TV show I saw is that. Uh, they really missed the boat here on the characters. Like part of what makes the first one uh, in particular so good is that, you know, the characters are at least interesting. You know, people were actually like genuinely sad or in, and mad when, when uh, Randy ended up dying in part two and in parts three and four, like, you know, most of the time these characters can't die fast enough. Yeah, that was like one of my notes was just like these. I just want everybody to die except for Dewey. From the opening, it's 35 minutes in between the opening and then when the first person dies, which is the hot girl. Um, little side note in Hayden Pantier's contract, she had it that she could not be shown dying. That's why she's still alive in the last shot of the. Why? No idea. So she can live on to be the killer in Scream <laughs> 5. <laughs> Is that it? Or is it that maybe like her parents don't like seeing her die on screen? That's I just remember so reading weird. that and like the person who wrote it was like, not sure why. And it was, just, yeah, I, I have no clue. Was yeah. She, well, I mean, we, you know. That's so weird because she dies at the end w- of uh, I Love You, Beth Cooper. She yeah. Just was, well, I was going to say like, not, I was going to say with Beth Cooper, I mean, the only thing we witnessed the death of there was her potential. <laughs> Isn't Sam Levine the dude in that movie? No, he's, he's like, he has like a small part. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's Paul Rust. Anyway, uh, you're both wrong. 
It's fantastic. It's, what is fantastic? I just okay, want you to tell me. I don't know. If, I doubt this was the intended thing, but my whole take on this movie is that the franchise has become so like looped. It's come so far around into itself that it's turned into a cliche of its own self, and it's just become like another bad horror movie. And that was the intended target and the intended goal. See, one of the things that I, my main argument to that is, you know, I I enjoy meta things probably a little more than than the average viewer does but it's, it's rough in this they there's a point that. where you know it's it's one thing to like point out the tropes and stuff like in the first scream it's one thing to do it in scream four and like acknowledge all these things is bad and then still do them like doing something that you know is bad doesn't make you smarter or clever it makes you an idiot i feel like it was it, to me it, much much like uh nerd two or whatever rory colkin's character's <laughs> name was you know it, it, oh. to me it felt like a movie inside of a movie like and I know that sounds incredibly meta and whatnot, but I mean they, I, I they have stabs, so it's not that far off from the movie. It's itself. like a movie instead of a movie instead of a movie inside yeah. of a movie. Yeah, it, I mean it's a bit much, but I really enjoy. I just enjoy the premise, and I enjoy what I perceive the movie to be and mean. It, it could be completely what Eddie or you think it is, but I guess that's what makes it different. I, I would never want to like talk to the writers of this, and they tell me like, "No, this is what it's supposed to be about," because then it just shatters like. My vision. Well, it's not. I don't think it's about anything other than saying money. Like, (laughs) hey, remember that thing we all loved 15 years ago? We're gonna do it again. And we're instead of you know instead of just popping that DVD and and watching it, we're just gonna you know pan them on the first one, and (laughs) and you can watch us talk about how cool it was. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're gonna do if your if your thing with the fourth installment, it's just gonna be to like look back inside like to just really like turn the camera in and go like okay the movie has turned into the, the franchise has almost turned into a parody it's gone from like being this really fresh thing back when it came out to like now it's just this self-referential joke yeah then then they didn't push it far enough because really they didn't make any sort of like it, it wasn't insightful in a way that i could say like oh i could have never thought of this like they basically took ideas that that, that anybody could have thought up, you know, about the franchise and just put them in a movie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that is, it, it, there's nothing new in saying, like, oh, well, now, like, the nerds with the with the webcams are, like, the new Randy. I was like, well, yeah, I know that. Give me more, you know? If anything, I would have, if, if they wanted to handle... Wait, I, I it, been... it, that was done, that, you know, the new Randy idea was done a lot funnier. First in Scream 2, like, after he dies, when they try, like, Dewey, I think there's a scene where he's trying to figure out, you know, he's trying to assume that role, and that's funny. And then in Scream 3, they have the actor playing Randy, you know, in that part, and that's that's funny. But then here, they just have, you know, like, every character is as movie smart as Randy is, and that's, like, that's no fun. Well, it could have been fun if they've actually, like, committed to that then, but they, but they just... If they're, they're still you know, trapped they by were, the same tropes that they're making fun of. You know, they still have mm-hmm. characters making really stupid decisions. If, if they were all as smart, I mean, it, this is a dumb thing to say, I think, since Randy dies in part two. But if they're all as smart and like self-aware as Randy is, you know, you know, outside of the opening, nobody should have died. And arguably, like 
including the opening girls, like nobody should have died in the movie because they should have all been smart enough. <laughs> but then you put somebody that's even smarter than that, and maybe that makes it interesting. Or if you're going to make a commentary on 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 horror movies, just the way that the first Scream did, then you tackle whatever new genres have come up since then, or whatever new tweaks have happened to the to the horror genre. So you know, you talk about. You, you really, I really thought they were going to do more with found footage stuff just because they had that guy with the camera on the entire time, but they didn't really do much with it, you know? Yeah, it's uh, like, it really goes back to this movie really having nothing, nothing to add. It, it just, you know, it just references things for the sake of, of referencing things and thinks that's smart. Right. But I did like the, uh, I like the use of technology. I mean, they didn't, I didn't think that it, was they never really explored as much as they should have but i think paranormal I, activity i think those movies use the technology a lot better was this before the first paranormal activity after after yeah the first one the first paranormal activity was like oh nine, nine i think yeah. and there's what 11 yeah so there were yeah, yeah there were Pay at least attention. a couple out. <laughs> but but i mean you know i like the fact that they you know they have smartphones and they have like their little cameras and they it was like there's a potential to make a commentary, you know, that you couldn't have done 15 years ago, 20 years yeah. ago, and they didn't do it. Uh, it's just the same way that you can explore a character that's gone through, like, somehow Sydney and her friends have survived three horror movies. And you could do something with them, other, you know, besides the very basic stuff that they do with them here. This movie, you know, it's weird because the first Scream feels like it actually, it, it, the technology is not that big a part of it, but it actually does more with the technology in the first one because like in the first one you have sydney who can't get to the phone can't get to the landline so she uh you know she uses her computer to call 911 for help in a scene and then you've got billy there he has a cell phone and that's like you know that's a big piece of evidence against him but here you have people with advanced technology doing less or the same things like the everybody that gets on their cell phone like they all they all just stop where they're at like they're on a landline when they could be you know they could be on the phone and moving around and trying to do something but they just get there and they just sit there and wait to die and they acknowledge their smartphones like they talk about how yeah. it's, there's an app that that fakes the killers yeah. yeah so i mean you could have explored that more you could have made it a lot more interesting just by saying okay it's like scream the first scream but it's happening now 20 years later so obviously the the environment has changed enough that you know some things need to be tweaked yeah, and I can agree with the things you're saying, but to me, it doesn't bother me because, like, to me, this movie's just, it's back to where the first one happened, so it's just going to be just like the first one all over again. So, when but you the, have I mean, that's like, it. that's a theme of the whole, like, kind of the whole, one of the big themes of the whole series is, like, going home and, you know, everything coming home to roost and stuff. Because, I mean, in part two, you know, they're obviously off at college at but college. The, the murder the the opening murders there it brings all of them back together you know for that familial aspect and then in part three they're filming uh one of the stab movies and that one's all about going back to where they started and they have the sets that are built to look like sydney's room or house and stuff and all the familiar settings and then here it's set back in woodsboro so that like the whole thing is you know, really incestuous and like all about going back home. It, it is. And it's like, there's the care, the biggest problem to me that like hurts my argument is Alison Bree's character should have been around more and had a bigger part in it because then it would literally just be like the mini versions of the Gale, Sydney and Dewey characters playing out what they had done originally. Of course it throws the wrench in the plans with uh, Jill being one of the killers. But I honestly, I remember I thought uh, 
Sydney was going to be the killer because I thought that was the only possible way they could do another one. Yeah, one of the, one of the things like I I thought you know going in you know it's hard to go in totally blind to a movie nowadays. So you hear so much about behind the scenes and making of uh, nonsense and like stuff that you know people care about for no real good reason since it doesn't affect them. But uh, apparently not enough because Rory Culkin still had that hair. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> like. One of the things I, I really thought when I heard they were trying to launch a new series with these movies, I thought there was there was a, a real chance that they would do something to actually shake it up and kill either kill Sydney or kill main characters from the original. And like like at the uh, the barn scene, like the first time, like I, I was really hoping not because I don't like Gail or anything, but I was really hoping they would kill her and do something that would actually be like kind of a game changer for this series. But instead we get the dopey shoulder injury. And then you kind of know what you're in for though. After the first scene, like or whatever you want to call that, the opening with the three different things. And then it's just a bunch of, I don't mean to use this phrase again, but expendable characters. I mean, yeah, if this movie had started and Sydney died in the opening scene, you would know like there was some serious. No, shit but, going but, down. but see, that's actually a good point because, uh, that opening with the three, I, I really think that that is really good. That the, yeah, the, I think the fake opening promises you, promises you a movie that you don't get because yeah. that's really smart. Like it's a really smart 10 minutes and then the rest of the movie is not that yeah, good. Yeah, it, it peaks like, I mean, to be fair, it peaks with Anna Paquin and Bell on the couch <laughs> well, together. Yeah, so that, that, the whole opening is, like, it's funnier and it's only, scarier than the rest of the movie. It's funnier, scarier, smarter. Like it's everything the movie thinks itself is, but it's only in that part. And like, I, I really like the uh, Joel Roberts beating herself up part. That that is really hilarious to me, yeah. but not in a smart way. The where, but yeah, the opening is easily where this movie peaks, and then it's just all, you know, it's all recycled poppycock that we've all seen a, a bunch, and, and maybe. You know, part of the reason I'm, I'm a lot harsher on these movies, or this this one in particular, is because like I, I'm a really big fan of Scream, and the first time I saw it, like it terrified me because I hadn't I was like 11 or 12 and hadn't seen many horror movies, so that was one of the first ones I saw, and it like it terrified me, and it actually like got me interested in horror movies. That was a very big one of our childhood. Sorry, Julio, but uh... Uh, yeah, I saw it, and I was I think I was probably 17 or so that, that was a really big one and that i have a very similar reaction to eddie's like uh when was the first scream 96 16 yeah okay but yeah it, it was a really big deal and like we we're talking about when we we're watching this the first scream was kind of a game changer and unfortunately there's not much you can do after you make a horror movie that good like Horror movies have a really hard time of topping themselves. But it, what is interesting is there's only four of them. Yeah. It's a franchise that could have been trotted out to, into the ground like Friday the it, it really should have... I mean, to me, it, it really it really should have stopped after part two. You could have made... Because I don't know of many horror trilogies. I, I know I know they're out there, but I, it feels like most series are content to just go on and on. But at that point, they're doing that more you know, because of the, the financial benefits than like creative... Uh, drive and so with scream you know the first one was really good i thought you know i really liked the second one i thought they had you know sequels i thought were you know pretty fertile territory for the series to to mine and you know you could have convinced me enough for part three doing a trilogy thing but really it should have stopped after two and now we're at a point where scream is really revered 
and but the series as a whole has actually only been good for like two or three years and in the of the 20 years of its existence it's been a lot you know it's been really bad for most of it well that's your opinion uh <laughs> i really like this one but i guess that no i think uh you know the the metrics of Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic are, are behind me on this one. <laughs> that is the point of this. Um, that does lead into the question, though, is this worse than Scream 3? I don't know. I, I actually, I tend to think it is, but I don't think either one is good. I think the acting in this one is better. I think the plot See, is I, better. I disagree because I, I think some of the meta stuff in Part 3 is funnier because they have the, the cast of people playing the original people. So I think you get, there are some funny jokes and you have like putty here or in part three. That's really funny. Uh, pa- Parker Posey's really good. Yeah. Parker too. Posey is like, she's hilarious. That's but the version of Gail, of Gail that we should have had in part four at some place. But three has the unfair advantage of having perennial contender Liv Shriver in it, which that's <laughs> the only way this movie that I, I wanted him in this really bad. I, I haven't seen three, but I've seen most of two. And actually, I would say, as much as I didn't care for this one, I, I found this one more entertaining than two. I was pretty bored. Yeah, I think you should watch two. part two. Dude, I, I can't get on the two bandwagon. I know we've talked about this to a, a great extent while not recording. But um, yeah, so my ranking goes one, four, two, three. Yeah, I would. it would be one, two, giant chasm, three and four. <laughs> A double giant chasm the first 20 minutes of the tv show <laughs> i i haven't seen three but i would say one four two and then three i guess but but the difference is that my four like i guess i'd be one and medium-sized chasm and then four whereas like you really like four yeah. right yeah. yeah so that that's and then like kind of surmising and putting into final thought my Big pros on this. I like that Sydney's really not truly the main character of this. It's the first one that. But who is takes... the main character here? Well, it's it's kind of like just like a compila a composite story or a compilation tale, which I, I know is like kind of a cop out to say because it's not like a fucking just random, it's not like a Pulp Fiction series of events that. Happens. Right, but I, I think that that is actually one of the things that hurts the movie because by not focusing on Sydney, they just. Again, you have any attachment. That's the problem with the everyone is a suspect uh, approach, which forces you to either be very, very bland in your depiction of characters because you don't want to give them any characterization that you're going to have to contradict later when they're revealed to be the killer, or you're forced to cheat because you portray a character a certain way and then they're revealed to be the... You know, that's why Dewey yeah. might be one of the best characters and one of the most entertaining in the franchise because, you know, he, you kind of know where you stand with him. Again, I don't remember if he was like, when was he ever a suspect, if he ever was. But for the most part, you're he like, okay, I know where he stands. And you were right. Like, the best scene in this movie is when he has that little heart to heart with with uh, Sydney. Mm-hmm. That's where it felt like real people instead of yeah, just. Yeah, that's like, the only time they felt like, yeah, like, it, or even just like the real fake people that that they were in the first one. Yeah. So basically what I was going to say was it's, I think that's a good thing that they take the focus off city. The problem is they don't use that uh, new space to enhance, embellish any characters that don't end up dying in the end. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. so weird to think that this film was going to be served as like the reignition because there's yeah. no one left over. I, like, I was going to ask you like, so what, what was supposed to be the fifth movie? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like it was supposed to be a four, five and six and there would have been no carryover. You know, aside from thinking Sydney was going to die, I was kind of hoping she would just because it would have, you know, 
there there was supposed to be some sort of passing the torch, but then like the old generation is the one that's left, and we've been through their entire story. Like we have nothing to gain from seeing any more movies. But but no, you could have something to gain if they actually were showed or portrayed as characters that uh, that that you know have actually been through the grind the grinder, and you know it's like the problem is that that's, Sydney. See, and that's where the first two like excel with this because you know by the by the end of them you feel like they've you know they've they've been through some trauma even kind of in part three because they they bring back like they have the ghost of sydney's mom and you know for for her there's there's a lot more for her to to work through but for this fourth one there's just like there's just nothing like i i, I honestly you know i, I the, the movie just kind of confounds me because it doesn't i don't think it truly succeeds in anything it does for more than a couple minutes at a time and it has like no point and and then when you get to the end there's just like you know what did i see harsh. no it's uh <laughs> you know it's it, it's really infuriating to me the longer i talk about it because it, it's it's so dopey and dumb but it's like i'll give you three things it, that I, 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 I can't. i'll give you two things i'll give you <laughs> I'll give you three things uh, that this movie does a very poor job of. Number one is Rory Culkin's character is supposed to be smart, and he clearly doesn't know how the story ends and just allows Jill to kill him there at the end. Uh, what, sorry, I have to jump in for a second. Or no, no, sorry. You, I'll, I'll jump in after you go because I've got some more ranting. Number two, the killers, Jill and Charlie are not physically imposing, nor are they powerful enough to do the acts of strength that are portrayed by Ghostface in the film. Yeah. And that's not just like nerdy like criticism. That's like actual logic. And three, the Anthony Anderson death scene has no place in the Scream <laughs> franchise, let alone modern cinema. I mean, this, I mean, that's to me, that's that's where. I mean, I, of course, I, I know these movies are, are ridiculous, but that that scene in particular is where this thing becomes a total cartoon. And just is like any any pretense of taking it seriously and trying to like you know if it, it has anything like that's let Anthony Anderson write his own death scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean you you won't be surprised to know that Scream Four like like two and three especially three before it were riddled with rewrites all sorts of sorts of pre production drama where I'm pretty sure on this one. You know, Kevin Williamson was again replaced by Aaron Kruger, who took over for him on Scream Three. Uh, and you know, I, I don't think much of Aaron Kruger as a screenwriter, but you know, it it feels, you know, it, to me, it feels so much like somebody trying to copy. You know, it feels like such a copycat job, and that's probably unfair just because of how much I enjoy the the first two. In that, um, you know, it's. It, it feels, you know, I say it feels noticeable to me, but, you know, can I, I, I don't, I don't know that I actually know that if I'm just saying that based off what I know of, of what happened, but it, it feels, um, you know, it, it just feels so insincere, which kind of is one of the things that bothers me and getting back to the characters, um, you know, everybody, when this movie came out was really high on Kirby. Everybody was like, Oh, she's, you know, She's she's this great horror movie character, strong, smart, blah blah blah, and and you know I'm it feels like the script really truly betrays her because there's no reason for her to ever you know for a second feel attracted to the Colkin character, <laughs> and when she kisses him, it's just like 
it's you know total facepalm moment and you're like what this, like it makes no sense why well, should she ever be as drunk yeah i was gonna say she says she's drunk i i i don't care about that i, I mean that, that dude is so so ratty and she's you know she's so <laughs> much she's because even even being drunk she's still like sharp with uh you know with trevor when he comes in like i i just i don't buy it for a second and it feels to me like the script just totally sells her out and after that, then you get the scene with her in the basement where, you know, she she is maybe of all the characters. She should know that, you know, there's no like they're playing the game, asking questions. She knows there's no way out. Like you answer the question correctly. Right. The killer's not going to stop. So when she rattles off all the remakes and then there's silence on the other end, instead of being suspicious, like the the Kirby of the first hour of the movie would be she's like oh i won and runs out there to get stabbed by the least intimidating killer in in the history or in scream history uh, uh, film history might be pretty close to it too um I don't know. so would you watch a scream I've, five alex i've gotten some really hot girls to kiss me when they're drunk so i think that's so you, you can you buy that but you didn't yeah. kill them after. oh god no that well you know you wouldn't admit to it no I think they were pretty ashamed of themselves the next day. But uh, <laughs> you killed their soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Scream Five, fuck yeah, I, I liked this, so why not? And just like Eddie over here, you know, he can say he doesn't like it, but he watches Scream Five. Maybe not as I, I, I would begrudgingly watch it, but not I would yet, not as enthusiastically as like before. even with Scream Four. I was excited, like I thought it was going to be good going into it. I, I was, you know, I was ready to love the movie, and then and then I saw it, and like at this point, like they have. They have no goodwill left with me, and I'll I'll see it on the hopes that it it turns out well. But going in, I I you know just hope it doesn't suck as much as this one. Fair enough. Fifty one percent, I believe, is where it stands. Fifty five. Fifty five. Okay. It was fifty nine. Is it fifty nine? Wow. Yeah, I it just it keeps changing as we record the podcast. It keeps going I, I don't know who these idiots are that keep jumping on there to give it a positive reviews. <laughs> They're going to uh, get it up to rotten, and then when the aliens get here, they're going to, or it's going to get up to positive or fresh. And when the aliens come and see that, they're they're going to lose all hope. Yeah, there's they're not going to give us a second thought before the, the wipeout. Dude, the poster. And I'm so not good. talking about AC, ABC's wipeout. <laughs> the poster is so good. It had the mask going to the knife. Uh, I think sixty percent, or let's round it up because I think that would accurately portray Eddie's thoughts. Would you say? You wouldn't say it was an F, would you? Would you just say it's like a D? It, it, it would be, yeah, it would be a failing grade. Whoa. Uh, well, I mean, by, I, I guess, you know. I, I, by movie standards? By, by movie a... standards, yeah. I wouldn't give it an, an <laughs> F. I wouldn't say standards. it's like, <laughs> no, no, I, I wouldn't <laughs> say it's incompetently made or anything. I just I just think it's really bad. It, it'd be like a C minus, D plus. Yeah, so morally. <laughs> you can say it's a failure as like a screen movie, but there's many, many worse it's, films. It's the out. sort of thing that. You know, you look at it and you just shake your head and you're like, I know you can be better than this. Well, so why, why are you content to suck? I'll, you know, uh, get 60%, off that rock level. 60% is fine yeah. by me. I, I I actually, it kept me entertained. I just kept like, you know, shaking my head no, and laughing. It, but I have a lot less attachment to the franchise and to the horror genre and, and, in general. And looking, so. or hearing the reviews that you were quoting, like it really seems like there's a, a pretty high level of indifference to the movie. And it's just, it was like, you know, most of those quotes you read didn't 
didn't strike me as coming down as like super positive or like this movie is trash. It was all kind of like middling and like, yeah, if you like this sort of thing, then you'll like it. What's a stark contrast to our first gray area episode, natural born killers is this is not universally known as some like massively polarizing film. Me and Eddie have strong opinions about it, but the general consensus is literally just like a shoulder shrug. I think that's the way it is. It's like, I think that all the critics kind of like shrugged. They just shrugged like one way or the other, but it was still a shrug. Whereas like natural born killers, like people were like really angry that one the moon. that one that one's trying to do something it's like it's worth getting worked <laughs> up over where, where despite you know how, how i come across it scream 4 is is not worth the the time we're giving it man fuck you all right <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah we're, i guess we're just gonna have to agree to disagree on this one what would you give it uh it's a C plus B minus. So what is that in Rotten Tomatoes language? I don't know. Okay, what is an actual C plus? A C plus is like a 78, 79, 80. That is so high. <laughs> yeah, because that's what the rating scale is. Yeah, and on the Scream scale, it's better than three. On a horror scale, it's better than most current horror movies that come out. On a movie scale, I don't, it's I, somewhere I, dead in the middle. Uh, did You you liked Unfriended. I haven't seen it, but would you Unfriended say it's, it's fantastic. Is it better than Unfriended? No, Unfriended's better than this. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen Unfriended, but I like the fact that you're still... You have some faculties. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying, like, freaking The Godfather, but it's a movie that... Oh, uh, really, come on, really don't enjoy. do that. That's the... That that's the argument of of the you know the the feeble minded. <laughs> the Godfather's not yeah, that I good like anyway. it, but you know it's not the Godfather, but it's no Citizen Kane. <laughs> uh, well, you know that was a interesting discussion. That's like the most div- divided that we've been. I well, think. it's divided in three parts. So, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess. Um, so yeah, it went pretty well, Eddie. We appreciate you being on today. Thanks for having me and reminding me why why this movie is no good. He's <laughs> just going to work angry now. Maybe if we like make it to episode forty, we'll go back and revisit it and see if Eddie's opinion has changed <laughs> why? at all. We should. That's why we should make like no, time. You know, this movie came out four years ago, and I've seen it a handful of times. This is probably my fourth or fifth time seeing <laughs> last it, which, time. which of course begs the question of if you don't like it then why do you keep watching it and i'll say shut it because you know i oh. do i you know i am an optimist so i i do hope that you know this is the time where it's going to win me over but one day you'll get it that no time is not kind to this movie that was the elizabeth town reaction i watched it so many ah. times that it was no longer as bad as i remembered it being <laughs> but uh yeah we thank you for being on julio what do we got to plug this week I don't know because this is like in the future, so I don't know what's gonna be going on by the oh, time shit, that episode right. twenty airs. <laughs> it could have already gone to fresh, and the aliens came and wiped us out. Yeah, God willing. Uh, but uh, all the regular stuff. We're on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes with the Contrarians, not the Contrarians podcast. We have an email address. Uh, we are the Contrarians at gmail dot com, which is also our website. We are the Contrarians dot com. So that's gonna do it for us on the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Where Eddie's right and Alex is wrong. <laughs> and Julio's kind of indifferent. <laughs> Thereby wrong as well. <laughs> and we'll see you for episode twenty-one.
Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira. Speaking of moving on, Sydney just shows Talk up. Talk about a swipe right. <laughs> <laughs> This right way, <laughs> I honestly don't know. I've done Tinder before. I don't the, know. This summer, swipe right. <laughs> this summer, not here for hookups. <laughs> <laughs>